Welcome, everyone, to a special jammed packed July 4th edition of the Electron.com Track Talk podcast. I'm your host, Weldon Johnson, joined by Jonathan Galt and Robert Johnson. We've got a wonderful show today. First, Prefontaine Classic. What a meet. Top track meet in America. We'll break it down for you. Then we have the $1 million match race. Did you guys hear about that one? We've got the Peachtree Road Race this weekend. $50,000 on the line at the 50th anniversary, and Let's Run.com will be on hand for the first time ever. We've got an interview with, well, we can't call him White Lightning anymore, but Matthew Bowling, nine minutes with Matthew Bowling, I believe. And we also have a New York Times sports editor, Matthew Fetterman, on to talk about his great book called Run to the Edge. It's on... Bob Larson, essentially, on the surface, but it traces American distance running over the last 40 to 50 years, and it's a great read. We'll have him on at the end. But, guys, first, July 4th, but we got to put John Jonathan Galt on the spot. USA versus England in soccer. Later today, John, who you got? I have to root for England. Yeah, we're recruiting this, recording this Tuesday morning, and I generally have been raised by my father to root for all English teams since that's where I was born. I lived there till I was 10. And I think the thinking goes that if I root for America, uh, my dad would disown me. If I root for England, my mom's okay with that. I am a dual citizen, but I'm wearing my England shirt while we're recording this podcast. Hopefully we win, but by the time this podcast is out, you guys will know the outcome. So we'll see who is in the final on Sunday. This is disgraceful. It's a good thing we're recording this on July 3rd that John is wearing an England t-shirt on American soil on America's most hallowed holiday. I guess it's not really the most hallowed holiday, but the birthday, I should say, of America. Well, at least I'm not doing it on the summer solstice, your favorite holiday of the year. Do you guys hear, in the age of Trump, John, it's very controversial not to support America. There's going to be tanks out on the mall on July 4th. Is that true? I have no idea. But it's also controversial to actually support America. Did you guys hear this? The Nike's pulling some shoes because they have a American flag on them or something? Oh, yeah. This was... Uh, they have like the 13 stars, 13 original colon- colonies. Uh, Apparently that's been adopted by some white supremacist group, which is disgraceful. <sighs> this is see, this is so sick because the, the, the flag is really cool with the circle. It's cool looking. This is the problem. One of the many problems with white supremacists is not only are they just racist morons, but then they co-op these symbols and anything associated with them is now taboo because they just have to ruin it for everything so yeah good job white supremacists keep being jerks or maybe we should just ignore them because did anyone know that they had taken this symbol over the betsy ross flag anyways let's talk about track and field pre-classic if you astute astute uh management people in upper management last week probably realized how we tricked jonathan galt into working on the weekend we 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 uh, disguised it as a free trip to California. John, thanks for working a weekend long. How was it out there in Palo Alto? How did the meet compare to Eugene? I thought the meet itself, well, obviously the performances were really good. I think once you got in the stadium, it was, it was pretty good. The First of all, so I spent a little time walking around the stadium before the meet, and I've never seen at a Diamond League Getting, being able to get as close to the athletes as you could on the home straight 
there, I know there are some stadiums in Europe where it's the, you know, lane nine comes right close to the stands. But like, if you were in the front couple rows, you could just reach out and touch whoever was in lane nine if they were running by you. I'm, I don't think anyone athletes did, any fans did, but it was crazy. I was, you know, walking around some of the people right at the finish line. They're like, yeah, we were like, we're Oregon season ticket holders and we got this release for a pre sale. And so we bought tickets as soon as we could. And they came down to California for the meet. I mean, the meet was well attended. It was, it looked like a, it, they was, we were told it was a sellout over 8,000 and it, the stadiums were full. The lines outside were actually really, really long. I, yeah, John, it was definitely a sellout because there's a thread by someone on Let's Run claiming to have t- seats in row U and uh, row U didn't exist. <laughs> so, and the guy said he left. He didn't get in the meet. They offered him standing room only and he said he really, that was already kind of full. So, hey, sorry to him. That really sucks. It was a great success. I mean, check out John Galt on Twitter at jgalt13. And he had a video of the huge crowds. I mean, it was amazing how long how long the line was to get in, sell out, which this to me is proof positive of why, folks, I should be in charge of USA Track and Field. I don't think I'd want that job. But this is proof positive why they should rotate major meets to different cities of America. You put the pre-classic in Palo Alto, it gets a huge crowd. It's a novel thing. People in Southern in, in uh, Northern California want to go to it. You, you put it in Eugene. Like, like you need to have a rotation of things. You know, this is why the, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays may play some of their games in Montreal. A little bit here, a little bit there. Hey, you're popular. I, I don't know, Robert. I mean, we had a Diamond League in New York and it got yanked because people didn't support it. You you really think, like, how many, A, how many stadiums in this country can host the Prefontaine Classic? And B, how many people would actually go out to support it? I I think a lot of people, it helped that Stanford is somewhat close to Eugene. So there seemed to be a lot of people on the West Coast who would normally go to Eugene who just goes down to Stanford for this meet. But you hold this meet in Iowa in the middle of the summer, I don't think anyone's going to come. I'm not saying to move the Prefontaine meet every weekend. I'm just saying how it's good to put things in different parts of the country. And, and people, uh, I know a lot of people in California that were excited to go to the meet. I, I, an ex-athlete that I coached at Cornell held a tailgate there. He's not going to Eugene because, well, he'll, he'll go to Eugene for the Olympic trials. I and mean, he's a big track fan, but he's not going to go up there for the pre-classic. So I, I just think it's good every once in a while to have a thing in a different city. You know, and it was a big success. I mean, I feel like the sellout shows that you can hold a meet somewhere else and a lot of people will come up. I mean, a lot. This is a relative to track, right? 8,000 isn't that many people. Hold it in Austin. You're going to get a big crowd. There's other places. But is anyone else? I'm really excited. I mean, I know a lot of these purists were upset that Hayward Field got knocked down. But I'm kind of looking forward to the new one being built. I think it's just going to be a wonderful experience. And then in Eugene, there's been some track fatigue. That'll be gone. So at least for a few years through the trials for the world championships, I mean, track's just going to be rocking it in Eugene. So I think this little break is going to be a good thing for the sport. Yeah, I mean, people will see the new stadium. They'll be blown away by how new and nice it is. I'm sure that Phil Knight's money will buy them quite the palace for track and field. And so, yeah, a lot of those people who are complaining about it getting knocked down will probably forget it once they get their new unobstructed views on the home straight. But let's talk about the races. There are a lot of them. There are a lot of good ones. I'm going to ask you guys just straight up, I mean, what was the most impressive performance of the day? Who is your sort of MVP of the pre-classic from Sunday? I mean, I think the obvious performance was Sifan Hassan's 818 and then 3K. 
um, statistically, that's got to be the the best performance mark run. I mean, the race overall, it was the second best women's 3,000 meter ever. The first one was over 25 years ago in China and, you know, a drug and fueled race. So that was the best performance, but I, I don't know. I mean, so many women ran well, so maybe that just shows like what they can do for me personally. I was probably most surprised by faith Kipiegan. I mean, what a run her first race back from pregnancy. I just kind of assumed she wouldn't be sharp and she wins the women's 1500 meters. Well, are we only talking about distance races here? I mean, Shot put Darwin Romani from Brazil, Diamond League record. Guy was a beast. So, John, when you please be a little more precise in your question. I asked performance of the day. I didn't put any restrictions on it, Robert. You're going with shot put. Weldon's going with 3,000. I, I think, I mean, Ry Benjamin ran 47.16 in the 400 hurdles. I think and in terms of where it ranks on the top 10 list in terms of actual Olympic events, that one was probably the performance of the day there. Most impressive for me was Faith Kipigane. I agree with Weldon. Like we, this woman was dominating in the fifteen hundred when she left in twenty seventeen. She was a twenty seventeen world champion. She only lost once on the Diamond League circuit that year. Twenty sixteen Olympic champion. For her to come back, and this was not an easy field. You had Shelby Houlihan. You had Laura Muir. You had uh, Gudolf Sagai of Ethiopia. For her to come back and pull away that last 50 meters was super impressive for me after not racing for almost two years. Yeah, the 1500 really fascinated me. I mean, to see Kip Hagen coming back was, was huge. I mean, the 3000 was probably better from a historical perspective, but who really cares about the 3000? It's not a real event. So 1500 had Houlihan coming back. You also had Danny Jones, which I was really into, Alexa Frameson. That was actually an interesting race within the race. I mean, we talked about that on the podcast last week. Who would win, Danny Jones or Alexa Frameson, and how fast would they run? And in the end, guys, the answer was, I was proven incorrect. I thought that Danny Jones would beat Alexa Frameson, but that's not what happened. Alexa Frameson beat her, but it was disappointing for both of them. 406 for Frameson does not PR, which John predicted last week. John, incorrect for you as well, so I guess we, we just totally butchered that prediction. And then Danny Jones ran a PR of 407, just a small PR. So I'm going to have to violate my rules. I always said as a coach, you can never be upset if you if you run a personal best. But I was disappointed in that, as I was in the women's steeplechase, where Ali Ostrander, she also ran a PR low 830s, like 831, I think, John? 931. Excuse me, 931. I thought she might be able to break 925. So both of them... PR'd, but I was a little bit disappointed in those performances. So, John, whose PR was most disappointing? Violating Let's Run's n- number one coaching rule, Danny Jones or Ali Ostrander? I, I don't know if either of them were really disappointed. I mean, A, what has Ali Ostrander done to prove that she could run in the 920s? Like, sh- sh- her PR is was 9.37 coming into the meet. The collegiate record, Robert, set by Courtney Frerichs in a year that she made the Olympic final is 9.24. So you're expecting her to knock off 12 seconds from her PR just because she's racing some pros? I don't see that. And Danny Jones, she missed a good chunk of the spring and the entire winter pretty much because she was injured. She ran the 5K at NCAAs because she didn't know her speed was there yet. So to come out and run a PR at this meet, I think that's pretty good. I think she's on track for USA's, you know, to, to be in contention to make the team. I think you, your expectations are just too high. And then the other thing I would say is, last week I did predict that Ephraim Sim would beat Jones, so I got that part of the prediction right. And I think I cautioned you 
that Jones might not be ready to run that fast because she was injured this spring. So to me, I sort of feel like I got that 75% right. Why would I think she'd run 925? Because she ran 937 in 95 degree heat. If you if you drop 25 degrees off the temperature, I would think that would be worth at least 10 seconds in a steeplechase. I don't know. That's a- but, it, but it proves to me actually about the steeple. It's just short enough. They're not running that fast that they can run pretty well in almost any conditions in that race. You can't do it in the 5,000 in the heat. Steeplechase, you can get away with it. Yeah. And can we mention one other collegian or recent, recent collegian? She has since turned professional. Jessica Hull of Oregon and Australia in the 1500 meters. She was right up there at the bell with Muir and Kipyagon and Gudev Sagai. And she faded a little bit on the final lap, but she runs 402. That's 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 phenomenal. I mean, this is a woman who entered NCAA's as the reigning champion, and with a 408 PR, she runs 406 to take second at NCAA's, and now 402 at pre. Only Jenny Simpson among collegians has ever run faster. So that's that was pretty impressive to me. Yeah, I thought her run was amazing. I mean, I was watching the broadcast, and I'm like, whoa, there's 300 meters to go, and she's right there. And I think that type of performance, total breakthrough, was maybe what Robert was hoping for from Danny Jones for Ephraim or something. It's hard to do. Like she's been racing the pros for so long. And I think maybe I, I would argue there's a mental component. Maybe your first couple cracks in the pros, if you try something different, just go for it. That's your opportunity. I know some physiologists, maybe even ex coaches like Robert are going to disagree with me. But what if some of the you know, she just like she wants, she wants a contract. So she just put herself out there to see what happens. And like my big breakthrough in running came, I was doing a 10 K my coach, when I flew out to Stanford, my coach just said, run up front as long as you can. And I made it like a little over four miles way faster than he thought 20 seconds, but it was just a different mindset. I'm like, he just said, stay up front as long as I could. And like, after that, I was a completely different runner. So I, I just wonder if somehow it's just such a big jump to the pros. I mean, I, after the women's 15 ended, I was so impressed with Hull, but then I was looking, I was like, wait, Ephraimson and Jones? I didn't even think about them until I looked at results. I never even saw them in the race. It's just a huge jump. Yeah, well, she made herself some nice money there going from uh, 406 PR to 402 before you signed your contract. She probably added a couple, you know, thousand dollars to her first contract. And a couple of diehards may be having heart attacks right now. There, If you were listening really closely, you hear that Weldon entered a race planning on dropping out and he did drop out. And then a few weeks later, he ran like a minute and a half PR in the 10 K. So folks, it's okay to drop out of races. Sometimes actually proving my number one point also that all races, except for like us championships, NCAA championships are basically practice. So there you go. But the, perhaps the biggest winner of the week, not even in there, not even in the pre-classic 1500 Dave Smith of Oklahoma state. Cause Sinclair Johnson won NCAs. If she runs pre, maybe she runs four Oh two. And then maybe she tries to go pro. Although I guess Nike does sponsor Oklahoma State, so maybe they could just keep her <laughs> in the Nike bid for one more year at Oklahoma State and then pay her. Well, I mean, we'll see how she does at USA's. If she makes the team or you know does something big, she might just decide to turn pro right then and there. So we will see. So we, we talked about some people who have excelled at the pre-classic, John, but let's talk about those. There was more so than most years that I remember, some huge names that really stunk it up. I don't know who to give which stud sucked it up sucked it up the most. Elijah Manangoy. He's only the reigning world champion. 
I was going to give him Olympic champion honors, but uh, sorry, Matthew Centroids. That's those are yours. I know he was twelfth in the mile. Yumif Kajelcha, the indoor mile world record holder, was thirteenth in the mile at three fifty eight. Nick Willis, the two-time Olympic medalist, was 14th in the mile. So 12, 13, 14 are Manangoy, Kajelcha, and Willis. Pretty amazing. 357, 358, 359. Um, Almaza Yana, the 10,000-world record holder, was ran in the back of the women's 3,000 the whole way and I think finished last. That, to me, wasn't that much of a shock because we had no idea if she was healthy. But the other three were, were pretty shocking. And then also with a little fanfare, after the race, but NBC, they were talking about this guy winning it. I would have thought so as well with his speed. Ronald Komoy, the guy that Renata Konova says will be the 5,000 meter champion at the Olympics next year. DFL in the two mile, I believe, or at least 15th place, 842.41. John, which of those was most disappointing? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Kajelcha because he had been running really fast earlier this year. He has the, I mean, he still has the fastest mile in the world this year by a ton with his 347 indoor world record. Whereas some of these other athletes, we know that Kwemoy has been injured the last few years. Elijah Manningoy, it turns out he's been battling an injury since uh, right before Stockholm when he ran poorly there. So Nick Willis, I mean, he's, I think Nick will just admit this. He's pretty old. He's 36. So it doesn't really shock me to see a 36-year-old not up there at the pre-classic, even though I know that Nick did medal at the last Olympics. And Ayana, yeah, Ayana's been hurt too. So to me, Kajelcha, I don't really know what happened to him because he was up there and then he just really faded really badly to finish in 358. He gave up you know, his scalp to pretty much everyone in the 358 13th place. So that's my pick, Kajelcha. Because we just don't, I don't really know if there's an explanation for why he didn't run well. Yeah, good answer there. I, I definitely agree with you. He was the most surprising. I mean, everyone else has an excuse. I think you sent a text to Manigoy's coach, John. I don't think we published it on the website anywhere, but he's been dealing with the injury, as John just said. So exclusive reporting by John. Good job there. But what, that's one thing. I, I know it's under contract. They have to show up at this meet. But Manigoy is such a big talent. Like, can he get out of this somehow? Like, hey, I'm injured. I don't need to be running these two meets. Like, that, to me, when you ask the difference between the American elites and the Kenyan elites, like – that's where you see the mistakes. Like Salazar is not going to jeopardize somebody like this. The, they sometimes do races they shouldn't do. Pre is really big in their Nike contract, but why are you running Stockholm if you're already hurt? Like, you know, Worlds is getting closer. I, I just don't think that was very smart uh, on their thing. But Kajelcha, very surprising. Salazar always has those guys ready to go, and he was terrible. Now, they said on the NBC broadcast, Craig Mosbach said that originally he was going to run the two-mile pre but he's got to run well, apparently, in some Diamond League meets soon in Europe in the 5,000 to qualify for Worlds, so they wanted to back off. They, they thought that it would be too hard to recover from the two-mile to get ready for this 5,000, so it must be coming up soon. So maybe he's been in a, in, a big, in a big training block and is backing off that and not quite ready for this mile. Well, I think, actually, the case is they were saying Craig Mosbach said he wants to run the 5,000 and the 10,000 at the World Championships, and... Kajelcha has never run a 10,000 on the track. So he would need to do, I believe the Ethiopians are holding their trials in Hengelo in two weeks. I think he would have to run that race because he doesn't even have a qualifying mark in the 10,000 right now. So he needs to get that. But it's strange. I mean, I guess that was their, their reasoning was the mile wouldn't take as much out of him as the two mile. I feel like it is it really going to affect you that much? Maybe. I don't know. The Kajelcha run didn't bother me that much. I mean, he won a Diamond League 5K a month ago. 
he's you know the miles not his focus he gets in there he was up there for much of the race starts fading price says okay you know i'll save it for another day the other guys are more concerns long term where are they going to be at worlds they haven't been showing it this year none of them and i say guys but i mean women as well with ayana so can they get ready by worlds and with Manningo and Ayana, those are two you know major metal threats. Another person who's a metal threat who did really well at pre and hasn't gotten any mention is Shelby Houlihan. I mean, she brought it that last lap in the 1500. We were praising Faith's run to get the win, but Shelby played it a little bit cautious and then kicked like you know like she can kick and almost got the win. So she's looking ready. That was a huge step for American distance running this year because she's. She's got to be our, our number one metal threat in the 1500. I would say, you know, no offense to Jenny Simpson. Some may w- want to differ just with Simpson's pedigree and past record, but Hulahan's the number one in America right now. There's no question about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a very good sign for Bauman Track Club's two-star 1500-meter runners because Hulahan showed you exactly what you want to see from her coming back from injury. She, she said she had to take six weeks off after the indoor season. And she's kind of viewed that as a blessing in disguise, actually, because, you know, you got a long outdoor season. So that maybe helped her just prevent her from burning it too hot too early. But she closed well. She had the best final lap in the in the race. The only woman under 60, under 50, I'm sorry, under 61 seconds for the final lap. So with three months of seasoning until Worlds, I think she's in a good spot right now. And then Matthew Centrowitz in the Bowman Mile. You know, I, I was watching the first few laps and I wasn't sure what to think because I know Centro doesn't go out right near the top in Diamond League races, but he was hanging near the back. He was threatening to get dropped. I was thinking, man, this could be a disaster for him and Jerry in his first race for Bauman. But he ended up closing really well, 55 seconds for the last lap. He made it all the way to sixth place. And sixth on the Diamond League is, is pretty good for Centro. He actually he hasn't finished higher than sixth in the Diamond League since 2015. And that's because, you know, in part, he didn't run many Diamond Leagues in 2016 when he was the Olympic champ. He's been kind of banged up the last couple of years. So for me, he looked, I don't think he's all the way back, but 352, sixth place for, for your outdoor opener, for your first race in a BTC singlet. I think it's good. And I think if he can just stay healthy, which has been the issue the last couple of years, he's going to be a medal contender in Doha. That was to me the one of the best, biggest, biggest performances of the weekend. I mean, both Hulahan and and Centro. I mean, we know the huge talents, but it's hard to run well if you're injured. And the Centro thing, I mean, we didn't even realize this. I don't think we talked about this. He didn't have the 1500 qualifier. Remember, you can't chase it after USA's. USA's are at the end of the month, so he really needed to get it in this race, and he did. And you know, I, I added this to our, our our recap. I just think that race, yeah, he's a big talent. But he's such a smart racer. Like he, some guys might have gone in there not in the top fitness and blown that race. You go out too hard, you blow up, you don't have the qualifier, then you got to go chase it. It's going to mess up your training. Now he can just go back to training and get ready for USA's. But he ran the first three laps all within one second of each other. I mean, 57-7, 58-3, 58-6. You know, I, I, I threw out the first nine meters of the mile there and then had the big last lap. Huge performance. And John, you spoke to him after the race. You were the one journalist that asked the obvious question, John. This is why we sent you out there. You asked him, hey, Matthew, why did you leave Alberto? Why did you join Jerry? What was the answer? Essentially, it's sort of what I got the sense that it would be. He said the relationship with Alberto ran its course. I think he's been in Alberto's system. He was there from 2012 through 2018. So that was seven years. 
he knows what to do. He knows the workouts. I think he just felt like it was time for a change. Like they both got out of it what they wanted. Centurits won a bunch of medals, including World Indoors and the Olympics. And Alberto coached him to that and played a huge role in that. But I think at the end of the day, Matthew, you know, I don't know, maybe the injuries the last couple of years had something to do with it. But I think he was just like, look, I, I had a good run here. I need something new to excite me. It, you know, he's already reached the pinnacle of the sport. So if you want to keep going, you got to find ways to stay interested and stay motivated. And to him, I think the idea of going back and just doing the same thing that he'd been doing the last few years with NOP didn't really motivate him. So last year, he went back east and trained a bit with his dad. Alberto was still writing the workouts. And then he needed a new group. And essentially, he's somewhat hamstrung by his Nike contract because you know there are certain groups and coaches that are affiliated with certain shoe companies. And I think he wanted to still train in a group. So... When you look at the Nike-sponsored groups, there's NOP, there's OTC, and there's Bowman. Those are the big three. He looked at Jerry. He knows Jerry. He has a lot of respect for Jerry. He likes a lot of the guys on the Bowman track club. That was the choice for him, and now he's out there in, in Beaverton just with a different different coach. Was there any talk follow-up, though, about like he said he was going to want to be coached by his dad? What happened there? I didn't ask him specifically about that. Again, my my guess. I don't know if he, I don't know if he ever said he wanted to be coached by his dad. I think he likes that his dad has some input and talks to him. I don't know if he said ever said he wanted him running the workouts. But the other thing is, sometimes these Nike athletes get a bonus in their contract if they're working with a Nike contracted coach, or they they don't have money taken out of their contract for doing that. So that might be one of the incentives to work with Jerry as opposed to Matt Senior. I think a big part of it, and, and this may never come out, is I don't think he was happy they, they brought Clayton Murphy in that group. That would be insulting to me, kind of you're bringing in a rival. And speaking of someone who didn't run, really run that well in the race, Clayton Murphy was, was what, the fourth American in the race? Yeah, finished 10th overall, 354. I mean, 354 is not bad. I mean, but, you know, 10 years ago, he would have been thrilled with an American running 354. But when three other Americans beat you, it was Ingalls, first American – 351.60, then Centrowitz, 352.26, and then Blankenship, 352.51. Blankenship was actually ahead of all of those guys heading into the last 100, but he got run down, and then Murphy. So after this, guys, let's talk about moving ahead to the later in the month. Who's going to make the World Championship team at 1,500? Is it the top three from this race? Here's my what I have to say about this. I think it's clear now Murphy's not going to run the 1,500 at USA's. Unless it's after the 800 done completely, there's no reason to risk it. you got to focus on the 800 at this point. Agreed. He'd be foolish to run the 1500. I think he ran, you know, he ran this, he ran Oslo. He didn't run terribly. He ran decent in Oslo. I don't think he ran a great race at Prefontaine, but obviously 800 meters is better chance of making the team and meddling. I mean, yeah, it's possible. He might not even make the 1500 team. Whereas I think he's, it's pretty clear. I have, I have a good, I think he has a very, very good chance of making the 800 team. I'd be surprised if he didn't, but in the 1500 to answer your question, Robert, I don't think it's the top three in this race. I think it's going to be Centrowitz. I think it's going to be Angles. And then I'm going to go with Johnny Gregoric, Massachusetts native. I think in a championship race, he's got that last hundred more than Blankenship does. So those would be my picks right now. Angles looked really good in that home straight. He ran a PR of 351. I think he's on the team. Centro, we know what he does in championship races. And then Johnny G over Blankenship for the third spot. I, I thought it was interesting how Ingles ran this race. I mean, no disrespect to Johnny Gregoric, but he, Johnny often runs in the back and then kicks huge in the last 100. And sort of he nipped uh, Ingles one year at USA's right at the line. Um, and and I, I think that 
Ingles kind of pulled the Gregoric this race and was in the back and then slammed it home. And I think that Ingles is the better runner than Gregoric. I know Gregoric is a world championship finalist. Um, so I, I think Ingles looks pretty good right now. You'd think he would make that team. I mean, he's got a better 800 meter PR than, than Ingles. Um, I mean, than Gregoric. He just beat Gregoric here. He was a better cross country runner. So he got more, more, you know, he was top 100 NCAs, whereas I think Gregoric was like top 200. We're really talking about that NCAA cross country credential. I'm just saying he's, he's a faster guy. He's a faster guy at, at the longer distances. You think he'd be better at the mile 1500. So slight edge there. I mean, Centro is a lot to me, assuming there's no setbacks in the training. Really, the question would be who gets the third spot? You're saying Gregoric at this point over Blankenship. That, that, I don't know though. That's a tough one. Um, but also we can't sleep on the Brooks piece. I mean, the top two guys in the 1500 in the U S right now are Henry Wynn and Brandon, Brandon Kidder, who both run 335. Well, don't forget Isaac Yorks was second at USA's last year. So don't count him out either. I think one guy though, we kind of can't, I mean, well, no, I'm never going to count out Robbie Andrews, but I'm just going to say the season's not been going well for him. He didn't run well at the Adrian Martinez classic. He didn't run well at the boost games. And then, this week at Princeton, he was a DNF. Oh, sorry, DNF. So, A, he doesn't have the standard. B, he just hasn't been healthy. You know, he's still battling this Lyme disease and ankle issue. Standard? John, I don't think he's even into USA. Does he have a, when does the USA qualifying window? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Yeah, I, I, don't, know. I don't know. Speaking of the USA qualifying window, John, try to look that up as we're doing this. Weldon, you have something to say? Well, I was about to give a little sponsor plug. Robbie Andrews, he's been struggling this year. You think he's been injured? Maybe he needs to try some CBD oils. Lots of runners are using them for recovery. And you know where you should go to get a c- CBD oils, guys? That's a, qu- that's a question. Floyd's of Leadville. Floyd's of Leadville. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, Floyd's of Leadville. Go to floydsofleadville.com. Certified CBD products for runners for recovery. They have creams, tinctures, oils, pills. Like my wife's back was hurting. She's used it. Use code RUN2019 for 15% off. All right, guys. We got to keep this show going. Wait, speaking of sponsors, did um, I, I did check out after last week's podcast. I, I was listening to it on one of my runs, and I, I did go to letsrun.com slash podcast, see if Weldon actually put up the page where people could review it. So good job. Weldon did follow through on that. Also go to letsrun.com slash shoes, put in your shoe reviews for us. We'd appreciate it. Oh, I thought you were going to say you went to the Hoka One One site and checked out the new July 4th colors of the Carbon X. So big thanks to Hoka last month for sponsoring essentially our exploration of the Ultras. But they have very cool colors, the Carbon X. And we're going to announce this this week. We gave away 10 pairs of shoes. I think seven or eight of the people, they could pick any Hoka shoe they wanted. They picked the Carbon X. But if you want to sport some cool-looking shoes around the 4th, they got some red, white, and blue colors, as John noted last week. All right. Well, a little housekeeping here. Robbie Andrews, he will make it to USA's because the qualifying window opened June 1st, 2018. He ran 336 last June, so he'll make it in no problem. How he will do there is another question. Anything else on Prefontaine, gentlemen, or should we move on to the richest weight race of the weekend in Florida? Yeah, for sure. Well, one, we didn't mention the women's steeplechase. Emma Coburn ran great despite falling. Um, Courtney Frerex and... um, Colleen Quigley? Yes, they opened both very well. So U.S. medal chances in that event are looking pretty good. You know, if one of the Kenyans essentially falters. And, I mean, Coburn, uh, obviously, in Ferrex went 1-2 at Worlds last year, so they may not need anyone to falter. But very good run for all of them. Yeah, so sprinting. Let's turn to the sprints. We haven't talked sprints at all. 
should we talk about the richest race of the weekend or should we talk about the sprints at pre? Well, that's sort of the irony, right? Is Christian Coleman runs 981, a world leader in the 100 meters. Third year in a row, he's been under 985 and no one else has done that even once in the last three years. So he's clearly the favorite for Doha right now and for you know Tokyo next year. But yeah, he runs the race at pre 981. And then the night before, Marquis Goodwin wins ten thousand dollars. The night before, Marquis Goodwin, wide receiver for the San Francisco 49ers, twenty twelve Olympian in the long jump, runs a race off. We don't know how fast he ran in this forty yard dash because the organizers did not announce the time; they only announced the winning margin. And he wins one million dollars at the forty yards of gold, which is an event put on by Chad Johnson or Chad Ochocinco, I guess, in Florida. That was essentially a single elimination bracket style race off over 40 yards between some NFL. Alvin Kamara ran that. Robbie Anderson ran it. Those guys are Robbie Anderson, wide receiver of the Jets. Maybe you guys haven't heard of it. Alvin Kamara, Saints running back, is pretty well known. And Goodwin, you know, wide receiver for the 49ers. A lot of people in the track world know him as well. But a lot of these guys weren't big names. It kind of shocked me that this, all this, they put up this money and they staged this event that was, you know, big lights and, what was interesting to me about that John race is, I mean, I know you consider yourself to be a big sports fan. I as well, although with the baby, I'm not as much watching as many sports as, as I used to, but and, and Weldon too. I mean, we run lots run. We had never even heard about this race until it, after it had already happened. So the pre-race publicity was amazing. I mean, or the lack thereof was amazing, but it's just, I'm fascinated by this at so many levels, a million dollars. Now maybe they're going to lose money on this. It was pay-per-view, but it just shows you that like, like how, what a small piece of the pie we have in, in track and field. I mean, it's pretty amazing. John, you should, have, you should have probably asked these sprinters, hey, what do you think about this? These, these guys made a hundred times more money than you did, you know, for winning a diamond league. But, you know, it, it was interesting. And we've been getting like, I put it up on, I mean, someone had a tweet of, of the race and I tweeted it myself. Like you can do like a sub retweet or something. And um, people, been, so I get the comments on there and people were like, you know, talking about the race a lot. And let's give some props to the runner-up. I mean, Dante Jackson, guys, he's a stud. I mean, Marquis Goodwin, obviously, they're, they're like, of course he went, the comments are like, Olympic speed is different than pro football speed. People are like, he's a long jumper. Like, it doesn't matter. It's really interesting. But Dante Jackson, then people are like, once someone pointed this out, people are like, oh, man, give him his props. Dante Jackson went to LSU. He's only 23 right now. He ran a 10-22 at LSU. Win legal. So, I mean, the guy is fast. I mean, he, he could be an NCAA contender. No, no doubt these guys are fast. Actually, you asked what they could, what the sprinters had to say about it. Well, I Christian Coleman tweeted after the race. He said, lock me in for next year, 40 yards of gold. $1 million for one race. My goodness, LOL. So I, I have no doubt if Coleman showed up, he would smoke all of them. But Coleman's not in the NFL. So I, I don't think that they would want, Chad Ochocinco wouldn't want to have these NFL stars embarrassed by Christian Coleman, so I think he'd probably be blocked from entering. And this is the type of event I don't think they should have every year because you'd have the same winner. I think you should do it like every two or three years. The question I have in that video when we watched him won, who the guy on the left won, right? It looked like to me he was behind. So was was Goodwin on the left of the screen? Yeah. Huh. He celebrated. I could he celebrated early. He celebrated in a 40 yard dash. I couldn't believe it. What was the margin of victory? 0.05, I think. So that's weird. They had margin of victory, but not time. Hey, proof track and field may not be that popular. 
only two to three thousand people were reportedly in attendance. Well, nobody knew about it. I know you got to publicize this stuff. It just shows. But yeah, Christian Coleman would smoke them. Um, speaking of Christian Coleman, I feel like it's worth mentioning, John. He apparently didn't want to talk to you at the uh, Prefontaine meet. Yeah, in the mix zone. I mean, well, the day before the press conference, I went up to interview him and he asked me not to ask him about Loma Lyles. And then I kind of asked him why and he didn't really want to go into it. But I didn't end up asking him about Noah Lyles in the interview. I made a note of that in my article. Then the next day in the mix zone, I asked him a couple of questions. I asked him about Gatlin because Justin Gatlin came back his first sub 10 since oh, since uh, I think 2017, since he won Worlds in the in London. He runs 987 for second at age 37. So I asked Christian, what do you think of Gatlin's run? And he said very quietly, I don't know. And then looked for the next question. And then I asked him what his upcoming race schedule was looking like. And he turned and walked away. So he didn't seem in the mood to talk to me on the day, but his performance certainly did a lot of talking. I mean, 981, he blew everyone away. It was very impressive. Yeah, and we're going to have Matthew Fetterman on later. And I was asking him about this, like, hey, how are you supposed to handle this? This is the top sprinter in the world. And he says, don't ask me about another sprinter in the world. And Matthew essentially said he would do what you did. You can say, fine. Um, I understand you feel that way, but I have an obligation to ask it. Then you ask it, and then just he, he's fine to decline the comment. Essentially, that's what you did, but this sort of all went down live. Yeah, we got to tell the backstory, though. Basically, he's just upset that he tweeted about Noah Lyles. John wrote about that. And then, then he didn't want to talk about Noah Lyles. And then he's mad that John says he didn't want to talk about Noah Lyles. So everyone's doing their job. Not really a, a big deal. Um, but kind of interesting The you know, Hey, we, we have a history of the fastest people in the world, not wanting to talk to us. Justin, John, welcome to the club. Justin Gatlin didn't exactly like love talking to Weldon Johnson. So, you know, people just aren't used to really talking to real journalists. They're, they're used to talking to fanboys or controlling their own sort of, narrative in social media all right speaking of sprinters we do have matthew bowling on the podcast i think we should drop his interview now he's the high school star the gatorade athlete of the year and because of that gatorade set it up so john could talk to him it's good that good that john's still the the fastest high schoolers will still talk to john just not the professionals yes uh john you have to mask who you are next time you talk to him but all right here's matthew bowling Okay, so we're joined by Matthew Bowling here, uh, fresh off a couple of titles at the U.S. Under-20 Championships. Congratulations, Matthew. I guess you've been getting a lot of uh, attention this spring. I'm wondering, you know, Sports Illustrated article, some of your races have gone viral. What is the craziest thing that's sort of happened to you as a result of this attention? Um, definitely, I'd say Sports Illustrated was pretty crazy just because that's such a, like, well-known place like everybody wants to like be in that so and i've been growing up reading like about olympians who are in it like michael phelps so that it's just like everything i've been working for since sixth grade is like coming together and all my hard work's paying off so you win titles in 100 and 200 in florida last weekend but you also placed highly in the long jump and yeah. you've run in the 400 as well last year what do you think of yourself now? What like do you think of yourself as a hundred meter runner or two hundred meter runner? What do you, what do you think of yourself as? I see myself as like a short sprinter, like a one hundred, two hundred guy. But I feel like my best event 
it's potentially going to be the 200 just because I have the 400 base that I ran that last year in 46.1. So I have the speed endurance. Um, and also I have the time of a win legal 10.13. So I feel like a combination between the one and four with the 200 could be a really good event for me. Yeah, I mean, do you do you view that, the 200, as your best event down the road? Yes, probably. Yeah, I ran 2030 um, last weekend, which I think is probably, uh, I think the 100 and 200 are about even right now, but I think down the road, the 200 could be my best. But I'm also, um, I feel like I have a lot of improvement to go in long jump because that's a really, like, speed based event but i feel like once i get the olympic lifting and everything in college like that'll help a lot with my long jump yeah i mean do you do you not lift that much these days or what's your lifting like during the off season we lifted twice a week but not like a lift not olympic lifts but at georgia like they it's like the coach petros kiprianu mm-hmm. has a whole has a whole Olympic lift cycle, um, and it's really, like, a big focus there. So I, I think that would be my biggest improvement. And even in the weight room now, like, I'm lifting in the middle, like, lower part of the pack. Like, most people on the team are ahead of me lifting-wise. So I know one of the things that came out when you started going viral and started getting all this attention is this White Lightning nickname. I know you don't like it. I'm wondering, so... Do you have any other suggestions? What should we call you? Do you have a nickname that you like or one that you prefer? Uh, nah. I mean, Matt's cool. That's what most people just call me. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and do you do you play any other sports? Is it just track? Like, did you grow up playing different sports? What's your athletic background? Uh, I grew up. Uh, the fir- first sport I ever played was baseball, but it was more just like to make friends. Like it wasn't anything deep. Um, but in eighth, seventh and eighth grade, I did basketball and football. But I, I was pretty bad at basketball, to be honest. But I gave up. I was decent at football, but I gave that up because I wanted to focus on track because I knew that was my best sport, and <laughs> it paid off. <laughs> and so you gave that up going into high school then? Yeah, I didn't do it freshman year. So my bosses, Robin and Weldon Johnson, they're twins, and they're always interested in, in twins when they come out in the world of sports. Is your brother a good athlete? Yeah, when we were younger, he was actually a way better athlete than I was, which is funny. He played basketball. He's a really good basketball player, but um, he hit his growth spurt this year. He was like, last year, he was like, probably like 5'4", so he was like, oh, like, this, I can't, like, I mean, he could, but he didn't get as much playing time as he wanted to, so he decided to switch over to pole vault. And then right when he switched, he had, like, a five-inch growth spurt, um, which is funny. But he, like, he'll play intramural basketball sometimes and just, like, win by a lot. <laughs> so that's funny. But he he did pole vault this year with me. Gotcha. And, you know, looking ahead the rest of the season, so you qualified for the, the Pan Am Junior team. Are you planning on competing in Costa Rica in that meet? Yes, I'll be running the 100, 200, and 4 by one in Costa Rica, yeah. And do you have any other competitions scheduled this summer? No, that's it. I might do, like, like there's little rice meets. They're, they're not, like, huge, but they're the rice track, and it's kind of just for tune-up. If there's one in July, the first week of July, I might do that. But mm-hmm. otherwise, no, no, like, big competitions. 
And, you know, so not doing Senior USAs, what was the decision to, to skip that meet? The what what meet? The USATF Outdoor Championships at the end of July in Des Moines. Oh, the senior Why? It's too late. Like, I've been running since February, and uh, after the U20 team, which is, like, a, that's been my main focus, I think it would be too much to go from, like, a high-caliber, like, meet like that and then try to make another national team. All right, makes sense. Well, you know, Matthew, uh, I really appreciate the time. And, again, congrats on a great season so far, and we'll be looking to see what you do uh, at the Pan Am Junior Champs. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Robert, we know you've not heard the Matthew Boeing interview. What do you want to know? What does he want to be called? I know he doesn't like white lightning. So can we call him the blonde bomber? John, did you, did you get a nickname out of him? He just said Matt. You guys heard on the podcast. I think that's fine. If he doesn't want to, I don't think we should be foisting nicknames upon teenagers who don't want one. If if something develops organically, I'm sure he's going to be around a long time in the sport. That's fine. But for now, I, I might still call him Matthew, but... Matt or Matt, is, Matthew is fine. This is a very tough day for John, Robert. I mean, as two countries are about to war on the soccer pitch, his ideologies are conflicted, his mom versus his dad, um, his journalism is being called out by Christian Coleman. And then when he talked to the high school kid, Robert, he, was, he gave him specific instructions, bring up Blonde Bomber, and he kind of chickened out. He couldn't ask him about Blonde Bomber. He just said, well, my bosses want to know what do you want to be called, and he just said, how about Matt? We'll see if my recollection of the interview one week later is actually what was said. So you guys can call out my recollection. No, I didn't bring up the blonde bomber thing. But to me, it's like, if you don't like being called white lightning, why would you like being called the blonde bomber? He doesn't like, he doesn't want any of these nicknames. I think Shaggy was, no, Chewy, sorry. Chewy is the nickname that his family called him because uh, of Chewy from Star Wars. But yeah, look, Matt is fine. He's 19. I'm not going to give him some nickname that he doesn't want. And the other thing is, a couple things Robert will be into. One, he says he thinks the 200 is his best event. So that might be, it probably shouldn't be that surprising. He's run a great 400 and great 100. And he did win the USA Juniors at 200. So maybe that's not surprising. The other thing was he talked about his twin, Robert. I know you're always into the twins in sports. And his twin brother was like into basketball, but he like, he just didn't grow. I think he's pretty short. They said, uh, he seemed like five, four five, six or something. Just wasn't growing. So he gave up basketball, started doing pole vault this year. And like, he grew a ton. So Robert, I'm sure you're holding out hope that the slower brother can become the faster brother somehow. Right? No comment. <laughs> well, we also have evidence. Matthew's brother was a uh, valedictorian of the high school. So does that mean the slowest brother is also the, the smartest brother who was better who was the better student who finished higher in their uh, class rank in high school do you guys remember john i thought you were gonna get a no comment i thought you were gonna get another no comment from him john it's been stated that weldon is better or just <laughs> weldon weldon is a lot weldon and robert are like a lot alike except weldon's just a little better at everything. <laughs> oh i'm sorry this is clearly a soft subject for robert so kids this just shows how fast you run your gpa that's not the measure of a person's wealth we love robert he's a great human being Okay, how about a little Peachtree Road Race talk? Yeah, I mean, you guys said we're sending someone down. Who? I don't have official confirmation. Who from Let's Run is covering this wonderful race? Steve Soprano, the forgotten cog of the Let's Run.com wheel, 
is going down. Peachtree reached out and said, hey, you know, we'll fly someone down. And it was July 4th. I was like, I can't do it. And, you know, it's a generous offer. So, yes, they are paying for Steve's trip. Um, but uh, ideally, I was like, this race is going to be great this year. We need to be covering it. And once they reached out, Steve could do it in short notice. So Steve will be there. It's going to be great because he's going to get to see, I mean, a tremendous race. They have $50,000 bonus if you break the course records because it's the 50th anniversary. And then also the next day, there's a marathon trials tour, course tour. So Steve will get to see the course up front and report back on that. So, and he'll get to see what Peachtree is about. I've always wanted to see like Peachtree, Bloomsday, Utica, I don't know, Cherry Blossom. I don't know what you guys consider the top road races. Kind of feel like we should have a Let's Run tour. But the problem is they're all about, you know, (laughs) thousands of miles apart. So how would you swing it? They're not all at the same time. So it's not like you could do one race, then the next race, drive the next one, do the next one. Well, there's a, there's a, as a New Englander, I'm going to speak up here for Beach to Beacon and the Falmouth Road Race. They usually, that double, a lot of athletes do it. They're both beautiful races. I think usually. Boulder, Boulder. What? Boulder, Boulder. I mean, that's pretty big too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I left off Falmouth and Boulder, Boulder. Those would be my big ones right there. So will we, will we call our, our Triple Crown Falmouth, Boulder, Boulder, and Peachtree, or where are we going? No, we're not picking it till a shoe company pays us to pick the majors of the road races, John, please. Save you could have a Grand Slam, John. I think a Grand Slam is better than running. I think there might be four contenders. But no, the Peachtree Fields, I mean, it's going to be really fast. You know, often we've seen in recent years, this race, they've had a lot of good Americans because it's doubled as the US 10K champs. That's not the case this year. And so they've gone all in for really fast times. And $50,000 for an event record, which... It's a pretty nice payday on the roads there for a 10K race. Ronex Kiprudo is running. He just destroyed everyone in Stockholm with that incredible 2650 on the track. In bad conditions, I was talking to Scott Simmons in at Stanford, and he's like, John, you don't realize how awful the conditions were on that race. Like the wind on the track, it was just cool. It was, sorry, the weather was cool. It was not good for running fast. He was like, it was way too windy. So he was astonished that Kipruto could run 2650 in that race. And now he's coming back and to try to the United States. He's run 2708 at the Healthy Kidney 10K in New York last year. And that's on a hilly course in Central Park. The event record is 2704, just the fastest 10K ever on US soil. I think Kipruto has a good chance to get that. It looks like the highest is going to be 92 in Atlanta on July 4th, which is pretty hot. But this also happens early in the morning. So Maybe it won't be that bad. He's obviously the guy to watch in that race. You've also got Tyler Pinnell and Abdi Abdurrahman among Americans. And then on the women's field, Briga Cosguy, who just crushed everyone at the London Marathon, she ran 29.54 for 10K on a downhill course on New Year's Eve in Madrid. And she's also the reigning Chicago champion. She's facing Fancy Chimutai, who's the second fastest half marathoner of all time. She just won the BAA 10K. And... I think they both have a decent chance to chase the event record as well. So it could be some big paydays on the way in Atlanta. Yeah. I think this woman's field is one of the best. I mean, ever assembled. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to measure that because it's a road race, but, and you said, no, there aren't top Americans. We have Emily Sisson. I would say she's the top American woman's 10,000 meter runner right now. Am I wrong there? Uh, it depends how you well yeah i guess she beat huddle at, at stanford earlier this year so yeah i would say she probably is 
so yeah, I mean that shows how good this field is. Sis in America's number ones in the field, and she's you know an, sort of an afterthought in terms of I think I assume going after the record. The woman's record is thirty thirty two by Warner Kiplegott, but you've also got Agnes Tirop, the world's XC champ, who won a track bronze medal in two thousand seventeen. You know she's in the field. Um, Ruta Aga, another two eighteen marathoner, Tokyo champ. She's in the field. Carolyn Kip Curry who's a 1427 5k runner. Um, she ran at 831 at pre. So I think Turup ran at pre as well. So it, it's, it's a stacked field and the $50,000 clearly is what's bringing them. I think the first place prize money is 10 grand outside of that. Actually, uh, let me look that up, but it, it's an amazing field. But the, the, I'm a little worried about the weather. So like it'll be 77, 78 at the start with a dew point of like 69 or 70. That's far from ideal. I mean, Caputo, these guys, these women's field are all such studs. You'd think they would break that normally, but that weather, <sighs> what do you think? What's predictions? I'm, I was going to say both, but that's, now I'm going to still say both. Both go down. Yeah, I say they both do it because the course records are really good. I mean, Lorna Kiplagat was a stud, but you get that much talent there, all chasing $50,000 for the course record. Someone's going to go out that hard and someone, or they're all going to go out that hard. Someone's going to hold on. I think the women's record goes down. I don't know who will win. I'm pretty confident Ronex Caprudo will solo this and, and get the course record in, in the men's race as well. Okay, guys, let's move on to the Japanese nationals last weekend. I'm sure you guys paid very close attention to it. What I would like to point out are two things. One, the men's 800 was won by a high schooler. We've talked about this guy on the podcast before, Alan Tatsunami Clay. I think he's 17. This is the guy that did well in that split up 800 at the World Relays. Remember how close he was to Donovan Brazier? He won in 146.59, the new high school and under 20 record for Japan. But more importantly, we talk about sports gene by David Epstein, the book, and, and just how the genetics of the different people that live in different parts of the world are all different. It's pretty amazing. The women's 1500 guys, do you have the winning time there in Japan? Shocked me. Like the winning time was four fifteen. The third placer and the fourth placer were both PRing in four sixteen. So I was like, what? They're PRing getting third in nationals in four sixteen? Like in in the in the three thousand at the pre classic, like even people in the back of the pack, like Wayne Kalati was running like four sixteen for the first fifteen hundred of that race. Like she equaled her PR in the middle of a three thousand. Like it's amazing how fast that race was. Um, so here's the question for you guys. Guess what the Japanese women's 1500 meter national record is. Well, then you're up first. Oh my gosh. The winning time was 415. What'd you say it was? 415. I'm gonna go 406. <sighs> That's a good guess. I will say ooh, I'm going to give him even less credit. 408. Wow, split the difference, 407.86. Good good job, guys. Good job. I'm claiming victory on that. That's basically 408. Thank you, Robert, for making it sound like 407.8 is between 406 and 408. Well, 407 is between 406 and 408. In the women's 3000, the pre-classic, do you guys realize what how fast Hassan ran? Like, I mean, it's 818. I know that, right? But she was split like i looked up her splits and i'm estimating her 1500 split was like 412.9 maybe 413 flat she went 413 405 you know how ridiculous that is coco 
ran 412, 407. Like, that is really good. Yeah, well, it is. People would say it's a clean world record. It's certainly the fastest time ever by a non-Chinese woman in September of 1993. So, but I guess that shows she could go even faster, right? You know, if, if you're going 413, 405, granted conditions did look, there's a little wind at pre, but conditions, I mean, it was a beautiful day for a track meet. But yeah, I mean, that, no, it was, it was incredible performance by Sifan Hassan. She said that was 3,000 is her best distance. I, I would have to agree because she's run 355 and 1500 already this year, but she's doing the 5K, 10K double at Worlds still. She said she wanted to double and 1500 and 5K finals are stupidly scheduled for the same day at Worlds. So that doubles out the window. So she had to do 5K, 10K. So we're trying to wrap this up fairly soon because we have the Matthew Futterman interview coming up. Guys, let's go to the message board. Weldon likes to do the deleted threads of the week. I just like to point out some of the posts that I, I was most into. And this is for Alan Webb, folks. In case you knew, just haven't been on the message boards, breaking news this morning, Alan Webb is back. Alan Webb has taken, he has quit the, he, he had, after retiring as the American record holder in the mile, he had started a truck repair business. Apparently that is no longer going to be happening. He is now going to be a college coach at the University of Alabama, Little Rock. Arkansas, Little Rock. Excuse me. Arkansas, Little Rock. Excuse me. And... I already had this thread up that I liked. Um, this was when people were discussing, there was a big debate after the pre-classic between which group did better or worse, the Bowerman track club or the, or the uh, Nike Oregon project. And I love this post from long Jack in that thread. He said, quote, athletes make coaches. Coaches don't make athletes. After you get a good rep as a coach, the athletes come. And after that, it takes a good, a good it takes good coaching and luck. And if you have a PED program, then pretty much everything works. Otherwise, it's a crapshoot. So basically, that was what I posted in the thread to Alan. I said, here's some free coaching advice from a former college coach. I said, one, remember, if you have talent, you can run well for any coach. Like Alan Webb ran well for Salazar. He ran well for Jason Vigilani. He ran well for Scott Rasko. Like these guys, Matt Sinchowicz ran well for Andy Powell, Salazar, and now Schumacher. Like they're going to run well if you're super talented. So recruit, recruit, recruit. That's the number one key to web. And then number two key I said to him is I said, Alan, I hope you're like Alberto Salazar and learned a lot from the mistakes you made as your own athlete. Alberto burned it too hot. It didn't have a very long career. Same thing with Alan back off a little bit. Best of luck to you, Alan. Go Trojans. Okay, Robert, that's like perfect sort of setup. I feel for the Matthew Fetterman interview, because you're saying the athlete makes the coach. And I sort of agree with that. But like, if you look at Bob Larson's career, I, I didn't know anything about it. I just sort of viewed him. Hey, he's this guy, coach Meb and like, you know, Meb made Bob Larson. But then if you go back 50 years, Bob was coaching at, Like he started out growing up on a farm, like a Kenyan, essentially like running to school in Minnesota. His dad has a pretty bad injury. Can't farm anymore. So they moved to California he goes to college there. Then he starts coaching at a community college, a high school, and then a junior college. And it's like one local area, Robert. You're not allowed to recruit. And he gets guys from this local area and just starts killing it. And then he jumps to UCLA and sort of people forget about him. And he had some pretty good guys at UCLA, but at UCLA, you're going to shift most of a lot of your – this is maybe where you factor in the talent. Then you put a lot of resources into track, sprinting. So he's not, no, he's not winning NCAA titles, but he's pretty good program. 
So I don't know, but like back in the day, Robert, he had two, two 10 marathoners back in the day from this little town in San Diego, like in the seventies or eighties, I guess, early eighties. So do you think they made Bob or something Bob's doing sort of help make them? Well, no, I, I think I, I'm not saying that the coach doesn't have a role in it, but uh, you know, I mean, I, the, the UCLA thing is the, is the perfect thing that I used to defend my time at Cornell. Like we had a lot of things. I wasn't the head coach. Like you coach what you have and you, you do the best that you can. I mean, of course people can, the perfect example of this is Bill Harris and, and the Fayetteville mainly is he has, taken home ground kids and just dominates the high school scene. Absolutely dominates it. But when he started coaching pros, I said, look, they're not going to dominate the pros because he's not getting the top pros. And now I don't even think they even have a pro team anymore. So it's a combination of both. It's not either, or it's there. There's a reason why Alberto Salazar started the Nike Oregon project with people roughly of your ability. Weldon, the Chad Johnson's of the world, the Mike Donnelly's of the world, and pretty much didn't do anything. But now that he's getting the top worlds, the runners in the world, coming to him you know he is absolutely dominating okay guys we can hear about much more in detail with bob larson next and my plan to fix new york city i think actually my tax rate just a little disclosure here we might want to bring it down the tax rate i have in place to solve the real estate problem so aoc some conservatives you might want to drop it down maybe half a percent and two percent that's just a little disclosure oh wait western states we haven't talked about Western states. We will do that after the Matthew Fetterman podcast because you ultra runners, like you're not even halfway through as you run now. So you can listen to Fetterman. Then we'll talk about Western states at the very end of the podcast. But coming up next, talk with New York Times sports editor Matthew Fetterman about his book, Run to the Edge. We also are going to have a review of the book from Michael Joyner. I don't know if you guys knew this. You know, Michael Joyner, you know, the big doctor physio guy always writes about sub two hour marathon, other sort of sports performance issues. I'm well aware of who he is famously predicted that humans could run a one fifty seven. The max human capacity for the marathon is one fifty seven. I think the genetic limit. Yeah. He was, um, college teammates with Tom hunt, who was like a tremendous runner back in the day and is in Bob Larson's book, ran at the university of Arizona. So I didn't know that sort of, my history of running, you know, sort of starts unless you were like an Olympic champion or kind of went once I entered the sport. So he has a review of the book as well, which we'll post on Let's Run. But here it is, Matthew Fetterman and then Western States Talk. All right. I'm joined by New York Times sports editor, Matthew Fetterman and author of Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. First of all, Matthew... I don't even know where to begin in describing this book, but I just want to get out there. I really enjoyed it. I guess on the surface, the book is traces the career of Bob Larson, Mepkofeski's coach. Maybe you give the overview of the book and then we'll start talking about it. Well, I wanted to, I've, for years, I've wanted to write a book about running. I'm a, you know, addicted runner and I've run 23 marathons and, uh, you know, it's very important to me. And I, but I didn't want to write one of these sort of solipsistic books that was just sort of about me and my relationship and what I think about when I think about running. And I was always looking for a story though, that would be a great running story and would also convey sort of the emotions that I feel when I run and when I think about running and the story of Bob Larson, which is essentially 
about uh, his evolution from uh, a small high school coach in San Diego um, to a junior college coach and coaching this bunch of hippie runners in the 1960s and 70s uh, to the national cross country championship in 1976, back when that was just about the biggest race, the biggest distance race outside of the Boston marathon. Um, it really spoke to me because these guys were his lab rats. I saw a little documentary about him and, uh, really about his coaching with Meb, but it mentioned this backstory and had this picture of these guys, uh, who were just these sort of scraggly hippie kind of scraggly looking hippies. And, uh, they, uh, I just looked at that picture. They kind of looked like the Doobie brothers or the Eagles or the band back then. And, um, I just thought those are the guys that sort of sum up that rebellious spirit of running to me. I sort of have to figure out who those guys are and if there's a story there and there was, and it's the story of the sort of rise fall and re-rise of American distance running and, the guy who was there really who's the through line for the last 50 years. Um, you know, that's the sort of main narrative, but I also like to think of the book as kind of a meditation on why we run, uh, what drives people to run and, uh, what keeps us wanting to be faster. Yeah. There's a, I mean, the book it covered a lot. And I think in your answer there, you sort of, I should have a shorter. No, it was pitch. good. It's just, I should have know. this, I should have this like, 30 second thing that says, you know, this is the story of, you know, X, Y, Z, but, uh, but I think that's sort of some of the beauty in the book. Cause when I was going to, and you were going to come talk to me, I was like, how do I describe this book? All I know is I really enjoyed it. And there's like a, the story of the Hamul toads. Is that how you say it? Hamul toads. Yeah. I should know since I listened to the book on tape, the Hamul toads. I mean, that takes up about two thirds of the book and I mean, that was so well told. I felt like I loved listening to it just because it was a very good story, almost like a novel, but it's a true story. And you've had heard of some of these runners, some I hadn't heard of. A couple of these guys were 210 guys. I mean, these guys are running sub nine, two miles back in what? Late, back early in the 70s. early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are records. Those, those are records that people had a hard time breaking for, you know, 30 years. Some of these guys, they were really fast. And it, it's kind of amazing because you sort of, you can really see where we fall off the map in distance running when in, in researching this book. And I look at these guys running, you know, 8.55 two-mile races. And I think like, wow, that's pretty good. And I look at like recent high school Running and they're running them in high school too, and I sort of looking at the at, at these times and and people just aren't really running those times in the eighties or the nineties and they're just it's, it's pretty it's pretty impressive how good they were and it's because they were doing they were working really hard. I mean the book's kind of crazy. I mean Bob's life story is pretty crazy. I I know Bob a bit, and even some of these. I mean I raced against Meb. I was in some of these races in the book, and I didn't remember him even that well. I mean I wasn't up there with Meb in many of these races, but a couple of them I was. Which races were you in with Meb? So, and I had to confirm this right before you got here. His American record, 10,000 meters. I dropped out of that race. You did? Yeah. I don't even really remember it. So do you, so I mentioned this race in the book because that was one of them. I mean, this race was central to sort of the creation of Meb. And it was, this is Bob as like a little bit of the mad scientist. You know, that was the first race he ran after training at altitude for the first time. And he came back from, so this is in 2001, 
and he came back from uh, the Olympics in Sydney and uh, Bob said, we're, we're going to go to altitude now. We're going to do things a little different. And they go to altitude for three or four weeks in April and Meb hates it. He hates everything about it. He, even though he loves mammoth, but he's, it's just him and Bob and one other training partner there. And he feels terrible. And then he comes down uh, and he starts doing some intervals at the UCLA track and he feels just absolutely bulletproof. And then he goes up there and and the third motivation for him was Bob knew, and this is was like the Bob secret sauce. Bob knew that this race was set up for, for Kennedy, for Bob Kennedy to make his run at the world record. And Meb has like this giant chip on his shoulder and that because that, he was a Nike guy as well. And he thought, you know, I'm the best guy. I, I won the damn Olympic trials race the year before. Like, why aren't they setting up, setting it up for me? And that really motivated him. Yeah, I was in that race. And I completely forgot about Bob Kennedy being set up for him to go for the American record. I guess fast forward probably, what, six or seven years later when Selinski broke 27 minutes for the first time. That race was set up for Rupp. So I knew that story, but I forgot about the Kennedy thing. I was in the race. So I just thought it was cool. And then, yeah, I mean, apart from the Bob Larson story, the rise and fall of American distance running. So I guess I was the sort of the early part of that when Meb, you know, was getting his medals and that sort of stuff. Because in 2000, we were terrible. We had one guy at the Olympics. And then by 2004, Dina and Meb get a medal. And those were kind of shock things. And I don't know if they were a fluke at the time or what. And then you kind of paint this picture of like, no, Bob sort of started applying the most cutting edge science yeah, to, I to Meb. Was, I think those, I mean, I think those medals were sort of fluky by design um, yeah. in the sense that people did not expect them. Meb, I think was the 39th fastest guy in that race. Uh, but, you know, Bob's whole thing was we were terrible in 2000. He had retired from UCLA he knew Meb had talent, but he also, but he had, he was on this mission to revive American distance running. And, you know, at the time, people were talking about the East Africans like they were a different species of human beings. People had all these crazy theories that, you know, their, their Achilles tendons were longer or that their muscle fibers were different uh, or that they were, you know, raised on the Serengeti and evolved to be distance runners. And Bob was like, no, that's bullshit. They're just working harder and they're doing it at elevation and they're training in groups. And we are, we're all scattered as distance runners. Um, we don't train at elevation and we run 95 miles a week. No one is putting in the, you know, the 140 miles a week. No one's putting in the hardcore threshold runs uh, that you need to do in groups where people, where you can't slack off. And that's what he created at Mammoth. That was the, that was the sort of secret sauce. Now you roll into that things like they knew it was going to be really hot. So Meb and, and Dina are training wearing long sleeves and tights and hats in the middle of the summer. Uh, you, you know, they were mimicking the course. They were really, really prepared for that race. And then they show up at the starting line in these special ice vests that no one had ever worn before. And they're wearing them because, you know, Bob knows to keep the, that you got to keep your core cool as long as possible. Yeah. I didn't realize like that was Meb's first race after going in altitude. And also I didn't realize, I don't know, maybe I sort of took for granted because essentially like I was a, a hack runner. I mean, not a hack, but I made the Olympic marathon trials, but I'm the hundredth guy. But I quit my job, moved to Flagstaff, 
And essentially I started doing high load training and nobody was doing it at the time. But like my coach, I think he's a genius and he's like, you got to do high load training. So essentially it's what Meb was doing, but like I'm no Meb. And I'm like, wait, people were doing this, but no, the concept was there, but people really weren't doing it. And I think about it. I'm like, wait, this sort of makes sense now. Like they were starting these groups and they were getting some attention and people, some people just trained at Boulder at altitude. That's not high enough for one. And I think about some of these other guys, like these guys in Boulder, what if they were doing higher for their high stuff and lower for their fast stuff? They're not doing it. Bob Kennedy never trained at altitude. I mean, you just, you you just think about like, what if you took that? And I was like, wait, I was a hack who started doing this. And I got, for me, pretty good. Like, I mean, the other race for me when I raced Meb was 2003 USA's and I got fourth. And like a mile to go, it's, I'm somehow there with Meb, Met, Abdi and Dan Brown and Culpepper. Like, it's a pretty good group run. Yeah, what's wrong with that picture? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's real obvious. So I pumped the crowd and then got dusted the last mile. But now you go to Flagstaff, there's Everybody's 75 there. people there, yeah. 50 people there. There was, uh, there was five of us right. when I was there. And then the Dina thing, I was like, oh, well, there were groups. And there's always been people who have run together. But I think, one, they got funding, right? And they could really do it the most optimal way. They got funding, but they also... Uh, and they also made a commitment to live a certain kind of way in a certain kind of place. I mean, people go to Flagstaff now, um, and that's a pre- and that's uh, it's a great town, and it's really cool the way that has become. It's really become like the the center of American distance running at this point, given the number of people that are there. Uh, and it's pretty high. Was about seven thousand seventy seven hundred feet. Or seven thousand so. for the seven, main Seven thousand feet. So that's it's sort of just high enough. Although Bob would argue you really got to be able to get up to eight thousand feet. That you're much better off, you know. But there aren't a lot of places where you can live as Americans are used to living, sort of in civilization, at eight thousand feet. And Mammoth is probably just about the the best one and even that you got to five hours from a major city um you know it was it, you know you had to make certain sacrifices in order to do it uh it's not an easy lifestyle to begin with to be a distance runner and then you put yourself that far from civilization um you know it's it's challenging and it's all about you know what are you willing to give how much discomfort are you willing to make yourself comfortable with? And that's really the essential, that's the essential lesson that Bob comes upon is how do I get my runners to, how do I teach my runners to be comfortable with being uncomfortable? You know, that's the sort of central thing, both in running and in life that I think he has pushed as hard as possible. That's sort of the key to success. And that's the thing, honestly, that really spoke to me about, his lessons and his ideas uh, both in terms of running, but also in terms of, in terms of everything else. I mean, how many times have you ever spoken with someone who's either super content or super successful either financially or spiritually or any other way? And they said, you know what the key to, you know what the key to it all for me was it was because I played it safe and didn't take any risks. No, it's never that story. It's always, it's always, you know, this worked because of, the, because I kind of rolled the dice. I pushed myself, I challenged myself and I was afraid to do it, but I did it anyway. And it worked out. And that's, that's, that's really what a lot of success in distance running 
it has to be a huge ingredient. You know, are you going to get comfortable with running at your threshold for three miles and then five miles and then seven miles and then 11 miles and knowing you're right there on the edge of exhaustion, but teaching your body that it can go a little further. Um, when you're feeling tired, try and go a little harder. That's because that's really what you have to do. Yeah. I want to get to that running to the edge concept in a second, because that's the title of the book, but first Bob, when you meet Bob, I feel like Bob is a very content person. So he himself almost, but he's clearly driven. But do you feel like even as a coach, was he more successful? Well, the UCLA part of his career is sort of glossed over in the book because it's he, he became known for coaching sprinters until pretty much Meb. And then he saw this kid. And he's like, I'm going to give him a full ride. And it sounds like he really never did that. But do you think Bob even himself, when he was like starting out and he – was it a high school coaching and then in junior college and kind of had a chip on his shoulder? He was a better coach. And then same thing once he's out sort of it's him and Meb versus the world. Or do you think even at UCLA, Bob was this great coach and maybe talk about maybe leaving out the UCLA part of the book. And what do you think well, I, or about Bob's career? Cause I just sort of knew Bob. It's like, I don't know this guy who coaches Meb and V Hill coaches him. And I didn't know, I don't know. I, I graduated from college a couple of years before Meb, and I'm like, oh, UCLA is not that good at distance running. And they were pretty good, but not, they weren't Colorado or Arkansas or whatever. Well, Bob, I mean, Bob, you meet him, and he is just ultimately, uh, uh, he's, he's the classic Midwestern humility. You know, he speaks softly, he doesn't talk a lot until you really got to draw him out. Um, he's got sort of a dry sense of humor. Uh, fewer words are better than more words usually. Um, and so that's, you know, that's who Bob is. Uh, and, you know, I should say that when I was pushing this book, Bob to work on this book, he thought it was an absolutely terrible idea. I mean, like he tried <laughs> to talk to me, he said, you know, I said, I want to do a book on the, on the toads. And he was like, well, who the hell would want to read about a bunch of toads? You know, and he, and he thought it was ridiculous. Um, but you know, I, by the end, he was like, you know, you're right. We did do some pretty special things. Uh, so he is kind of a, a, a kind of a quiet guy, but he is incredibly competitive. He wants to win. And he, yeah, I think he does a good job of just masking it, you know? Yeah. He seems so calm and gentle, but I'm, yeah. you can't be. He, des- he always wanted, he, you know, he just, he wants to solve the puzzle. That's what he wants to do. He wants to, from the time he's 19 years old, he's trying to figure out like what can, well, first he's doing it for himself because he's, a, he's pretty fast himself. Um, you know, how do I, how do I go really far, really fast? And he's trying to figure that out. And he knows it has something to do with making your heart stronger. Uh, and he's, he's, he ends up at San Diego state university and falls in with this guy, Fred Cash, who's doing really the first uh, studies in cardio health at a time when conventional wisdom says to strain your heart after the age of 35 is to risk a catastrophic cardiac event. And this guy, Fred Cash says, you know, no, I think the heart is a muscle like any other muscle. And if you exercise it, it'll get stronger. And he has a, adults who come to the San Diego State track a couple nights a week, and he starts checking their pulses. And he finds out, lo and behold, that the more they run, the more efficient their hearts become. And 
Bob is fascinated with this and he starts working with him. And that sort of becomes the essence of his coaching that there are, there are numbers behind it and there is science behind it and that there are things that can be measured and monitored. And that's what he's doing in, you know, like 1966 with high school runners at Monta Vista high school in the East County in San Diego. It's kind of crazy. Cause that's one thing that I got from this book kind of picked up on. I mean, Bob grew up on a farm in Minnesota. Like until, a, yeah, until he was like, a, he was like a Kenyan in America. He's like running to school and like milking cows and, I think I'd heard that story once from him and I was like, come on, man, this, this is America. He's like, yeah, this was America in 1950s. Right. No electricity, no running water. Um, it was a lot of what they were doing on that farm was subsistence farming. I mean, they did have cattle and they would sell meat and they would milk cows. And I think they would sell some of the milk, but a lot of what they raised on that property, you know, his mother would can the vegetables and that's what they would eat all winter. They, you know, would, uh, they would raise cattle. They would, you know, slaughter some of them and sell some of the meat, but they rented freezer space in town, which was, I think about 15 miles away in Detroit lakes. And that was the meat they used for, you know, that would, they would eat. Uh, they, they, you know, what did they do on Thanksgiving? They killed one of the turkeys on their farm and they ate the turkey. It was really, it it was this is the 1940s uh, in northern Minnesota, sort of north central Minnesota, and uh, it was kind of subsistence farming. And we might, I mean, Bob might, they never would have moved to California, but his dad had a yeah, accident, his dad, right? right well, his dad uh, fell out of the haymow. Uh, it's either haymow or haymow, and everyone's laughing at me, but I have to apologize. I'm, you know, I'm a New York, I'm a pretty much a lifelong New Yorker. Haven't spent a lot of time on farms. When Bob was telling me that story, uh, I was taking notes and he said, and he said, my dad felt, well, I said, well, why'd you move to California? He said, well, my dad fell out of the haymow. And I looked up at him and he kind of looked at me and he said, you don't know what a haymow is, do you? I said, Bob, I got no idea what a haymow is. Uh, How do you spell it? Cause I was H-A-Y-M-O-W, listening. And it's the second level of the barn okay. where you store the hay. Got it. And his dad fell out of there and wrecked his back and couldn't do farm work anymore. So they had to move to California. Yeah, because I listened on tape and I was like, hey, Mo, hey, Mill? I wasn't sure what the term was right. either. Good. I'm not the only, I'm not so, the only one. Yeah, I guess I'm no different. You know, I, w- there's a part in well, the book you talked about how you went to writing school in Arkansas. I did. Coming yeah. from New York and culture shock. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, these city slickers don't know what they're talking about. But I, 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 growing up in the city of Dallas probably isn't that much different. And, you know, it's no New York, but we're not on a farm in Minnesota, right. either one of us. Right. Well, Fayetteville was, uh, I mean, look, it's a big Southern college town. So, and it was great. I love everything about it, but, um, you know, it was 1991 and the world was a lot bigger place in 1991, you know, when you couldn't just wake up in the morning and go to, you know, nytimes.com or wsj.com and like get everything on your computer. I mean, you, so that was a, you talk about culture shock for someone who lived in New York pretty much most of his life. Um, you know, they, most, a lot of the people I met down there had never met a Jew before. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. or maybe they had, but they wouldn't even, they didn't realize it. Uh-huh. They never even think they wouldn't, they just wouldn't even think of it. Cause it just, you know, there was just so few, there was some, Jews in Little Rock and some in Fayetteville because they're university towns. But um, yeah, very few. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was different. It was great. Loved everything about it. 
Yeah. Um, turning to the title of the book, name of the book, Running to the Edge. How did you come up with the name? Is, it, is there a line in there? I don't even remember that part, but like, I feel like the constant theme is that we're constantly pushing the, the boundaries. And also I felt like you did a good job with the book of sort of trying to describe like that feeling we're trying to get when we're running, we're trying to push your body and it's, you want to push, but not push too hard. And I don't even know how to really describe it to people. And I think that's the concept you're getting at, but how did you get the title for it? Well, it was, it was sort of, it was a couple different things, but Bob kept talking about when I would, you know, I spent a lot, a lot of hours sitting around with Bob talking about coaching and training and having him tell stories. And Bob would talk about this idea of sort of going to your threshold. And, you know, I said, Bob, what is a threshold? And he would say, well, it's right. It's that edge where, you know, you're just about to feel completely exhausted. If you go, if you go one click faster, you're not going to be able to breathe anymore. You're just, it's going to be anaerobic. Um, but just before then, right on that edge, right on that threshold. And I, and I, I think, you know, the sports scientists would tell you, oh, it would say, oh yeah, that's the lactate, you know, the lactate threshold where, you know, your muscles start producing too much lactate, um, and your blood levels change and things like that. So it was the idea of sort of the idea of where you are, that's where you had to be right on the edge of where if you went too far, you'd fall over, fall over the cliff and things would not work out well. But it's that danger spot. Um, and it's also sort of you know, the idea that Bob, when he was 23 years old and 24 years old, he wanted to, you know, create essentially, you know, the New York Yankees of distance running. And he had this idea that he was going to do that. And he said, okay, but I'm going to, I'm going to start at this little high school and, you know, then work my way up and go to junior college. People would have said like, wait, you're coaching this little high school. Like you're crazy. So the edge is also kind of like the edge of sanity. Um, Cause you have to think of some things that are pretty insane to, in order to accomplish things that are pretty insane. Um, and what do you, a lot of things he accomplished were kind of insane when you think about it. You mean it? He said this little junior college, I mean, the talent that went through there, one Olympian, right? Did, yeah. No, did Ed start there? Ed, he coached oh, yeah. Ed, start, Ed Mendoza, 1976 Olympian. He was at Grossmont College. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in this, so essentially the team that Bob sends to the national championships, they're all from, everybody's to San Diego runner. Everyone's from San, everyone's I mean, it's from, one little town. Yeah, everyone's from San Diego. I guess we can spoil it, right? They, you already yes. said they win, right? Well, right. I don't want to do a spoiler here. They win the 1976 cross country title, but two of the guys are two ten marathoners. I mean, we can't get anyone to break two ten now. Well, thank you. We we did this year. Thank right. you, Scott Fable and Jared. Thank you. Finally, but these guys were running two ten back then, and ten years before, no one even knew how to train. They're running sub nine in high school. I mean, it's pretty crazy, and they're all at this one little school or connected to the school. Right. They're certainly in the district of, in junior colleges back then, you could only draw from your, your district. There's no recruiting. So there's eight schools that could feed into this. So Bob was just taking the sort of fastest people in that area, in that little eight school district and turning them. And they won, I think it was, I think it won 10 straight California state junior college championships. And if you look at the times that, they would run on these courses. I mean, they, and they're 
cumulative scores, I mean, they would have beaten all the four-year colleges as well. And this was, yeah, and this was like the premier. I mean, some of the guys program. are going to you know Arizona and Oregon. Arizona, Colorado, and one of the guys, yeah. I can't remember who it was. He leaves Oregon to come essentially run for Bob. I yeah, mean, there's two. Well, there's a, there's two guys who. Um, are running at Washington State. They go, Washington, they yeah, go to Washington State it. back when Washington State starts bringing in all the all the Henry Rono and yeah, Henry Ronos, and uh, so they essentially drop out to come back and train with Bob. They can't go to junior college right. anymore, so they come back to train with him. Um, people go to Oregon. People go from his college to Oregon, but they keep train. They keep talking with him on the phone and training with him in summers. And they, you know, they talk about these guys talk. He's the formative coach of their lives, no matter where they went after Grossmont college. Um, he's the, he's the guy that sort of shaped everything for them. Yeah. And it was a totally different era too. Like, I mean, just how sort of non-professional it was. These yeah. guys fly to the nationals. They're, the team of how many is it? Eight or nine? They're eight people. Yeah, eight in a room. They're sharing two rooms, including Bob. A couple guys are on the floor. One guy's in the trunk of the car. Right. I Bob mean, messed, Bob messed up. He miscounted. He figured figured it's me plus the team. We just need one car. Four in the back. Four in the front. And then they get out in the morning. He's like, "Uh oh, we actually have nine. So uh, Glenn Best goes in the trunk of the car. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. You know, look, running back then. Distance running back then was an incredibly rebellious countercultural act. I mean, that's there was nothing crazier than you could that you could do. I mean, there's crazier things you can do, but the idea of waking up on a Saturday morning and running 20 miles that was, those were like really fringe, freaky guys, you know, freaks who were doing that sort of thing back then. It's very mainstream now. But I really believe that like that spirit of rebelliousness, even though it's like one of the most mainstream activities you can do, I still think that carries through. And I still think that spirit is like at the heart of the sport. And so many sort of regular marathoners like myself, they do it because it's their way to sort of feel that sort of sense of rebellion. They like it when people say, I know I like it when people say, what'd you do today? And I say, oh, I, you know, I, did my 20 mile run. They said, what you ran 20 miles, you out of your mind. And you sort of like that feeling of, yeah, I'm a little bit out of my mind. Sure. Yeah. It's funny. Cause now I run about 20 minutes and <laughs> well, I, like, I like doing that better, but you know, I did like it. Like, yeah, it's not that hard. You know, I, I can do it. And there's times just to be so engrossed in one thing that's so simple and so beautiful. And I don't know, I've always sort of questioned why we do it. And, I felt throughout your book, especially when you sort of drop in your own sort of like stories of you running, it sort of, we all kind of like, wait, why are we doing this? You know, why are you doing it? Why are the Homo Little Toads doing it? Why is Bob doing this? And I think it was really good to sort of look at his career over 50 years and sort of, I don't know, just the story. I'm con I constantly was coming back to it. I, I just really enjoyed it. And well, I'm it, glad. it was told this. Even like the story, the car, I don't know how you got these stories out of Bob, but they were so good. And I guess you talked to enough people and do enough research, the stories come out. But I feel like so much of like what we do at Let's Run, that it's like, here's the race, here's what they run. It's so immediate. It's a very myopic focus. And we sort of forget some of the, I don't know, humanity of the sport and some of also maybe a bigger picture. We're so focused on like, who's going to win this race? Who's going to win the next race? And it's not like 
hey, where's running gone? Where's running been? Well, with that question, you mentioned why we run. When I would sit, when I, you know, I, I, I knew the guys who were on the team. I knew Bob. So the first thing I did was, you know, tracking each of these guys down. And um, the first question I asked him, I said, why did you run? And not one of them had the answer. I don't know. I was kind of fast. I just, I did it. I was good at it. Why not? Like every single one of them had kind of a more incredible story to me, at least a very sort of emotional attachment. You mentioned Edmund Dozer before. I mean, this is a guy who was, you know, really small as a kid uh, and a terrible athlete. He would go down and play, you know, the stick and ball sports at the park with the neighborhood kids. And he was always humiliated because his little sister would get picked for a team before he did. Uh, and he just, it, 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 he felt completely purposelessness. He felt a sense of purposelessness in terms of his physicality. And then he goes to high school and he runs in gym class and the track coach sees him or hears about him and says, you know, you're one of the fastest kids in the school. You should do track and field. And he says, what's track and field. And then he joins the team and he realizes he actually is fast. And for the first time he realizes that this little body of his can do something well. And it's this incredible a sense of self-esteem that he feels for the first time in his life. And it's very empowering. Uh, and you have guys who, who ran because they were desperate to, you know, have bad family situations. Uh, Dale fleet, his mother and his stepfather were fighting all the time. So he, he realized he needed to get out of the house. He had no money. He needed a track scholarship runs he figures i'm gonna run 800 miles this summer that's gonna get me under nine minutes or give me the best chance to get me under nine minutes and then i'm gonna get a track scholarship and damn it if he didn't run every one of those 800 miles and get under nine minutes and get his full ride to washington state so it's just it's just really strong stories about um why why they run and i think we i think a lot of people i mean a lot of people they get a certain emotion and have a real emotional attachment to the activity whether you're finishing a marathon in five or six hours or three hours or 251 or 210 or whatever it is 201 (laughs) that's pretty good 201 30 yeah i'm sure he has i'm sure he has his uh his emotional reasons he's a machine yeah i don't know if he has emotional reasons He's a machine, but he's like a Zen master too. I mean, he's like the philosopher king of running. That's what makes him so. That's what makes Kipchoge so great. I think is that you, know, you sort of listen to his quotes, and it's he's sort of he's speaking about running, but he's also sort of speaking about. He's, I mean, he's it's so philosophical. It's just great. Yeah, no, he's unbelievable. Um, okay, we got to keep moving because we're we're almost at thirty minutes. That's actually thirty. So we're doing more than thirty, but. Okay, my one complaint with the book, and then my favorite part complaint of the book. Fa- favorite part of the book. Okay, you know you're a New York Times editor, right? The you said, oh, a million to two million people watched the New York City Marathon, and that's the numbers they always put out. But there's no way a million or two million people watched the marathon on the side of the street. And I tried. To, there was, I swear, there was a thread on Let's Run, and people broke it down. And like, how many people there could be actually? Like, I swear, I saw yesterday for the parade there was. Somebody said 3 million people or something. I mean, like you just see these numbers thrown out or the, yeah. the Cubs. Then I was Googling, I was reading all these stuff about the Cubs parades and all this other stuff. But, and the time a couple weeks ago had the, how many people were in the Hong Kong like protest, but you guys yeah. didn't come up with a number. 
Okay. So, so the Trump rally or inauguration, I'm sure you guys put a number on that. So you guys need to, that's what you need to do. You yeah, know, you're for right. the, I want a number. How many people can watch? How many people are, are actually watching on the, the streets? Marathon, on the streets. And I swear there was this red and let's run. I, I looked for it for like 30 minutes. I couldn't find it. Yeah. But I, I think it's a couple hundred. I think it's got to be like, I don't know, for sure under half a million. It's a lot, though. It's a lot. Yeah, no, but, you're right. I should have, I should probably have fact checked. No, that's that their number. Bit. They, everybody throws these numbers out there. Yeah. Every crowd I was reading, I think today about, about the, Stonewall Parade Pride, right. and I was like, these numbers can't be true. But and it's always, you know, organizers say, yeah. And I think it's really hard to estimate. Maybe I should. I mean, with said- with the Trump stuff, everyone knew that was wrong, but they, coming up with a number was impossible, right? So- I should have just said fuckload. <laughs> a fuckload of people on the streets of New York. Yeah, but I, it would have been a little less so, poetic. I, people I swear this, the the crowd thing used to be a meme on Let's Run or something, but maybe not because I couldn't find the thread. So okay. it's really not that big of a complaint. Well, but if you've run the race, it sure feels like a billion people. Have. You hear, you know, those, those roars at First Avenue. And um, what's really interesting about New York to me is, I, you know, I ran my first New York Marathon in 1996. And um, it, it's interesting you can sort of see how New York itself has changed by the noise in different neighborhoods, you know, like Williamsburg and Greenpoint, those used to be kind of dead. And now they're just like filled with hipsters and, and yeah, maybe you know, young people and everything. You, you really sent, it's like a, it's a real change. You can see the real change in the city. And now the Upper East Side in Manhattan, the first Avenue, which used to be really young neighborhood and is gotten old and it used to be like it's definitely quieter than it used to be really yeah i definitely it's just it's just sort of mellower and you know the whole area of like in brooklyn where carroll gardens are when you're up fourth avenue that used to be kind of empty and now it is absolutely packed so it's uh it's it's and so you know it's it, maybe you, maybe you i see the changes in maybe it. i'm wrong yeah. maybe i'm the fake news because i ran it in two the last time i ran it was 2003 Okay. So you know, first well, Ave was probably happening, then Brooklyn was probably dead then. Yeah. And now if we parts of it, if we've got people in the first fifteen miles of the course, you know, you could double or triple the numbers. There's a ton of people. <laughs> There's certainly a ton of people in Bay Ridge, and then uh, yeah, all th- you know, all through Brooklyn, you're streaming through all the way up Fourth Avenue. Got a ton of people there. Yeah, and then Fort Greene is massive. Um, so I don't know. It's a lot of people. Okay. So my favorite part of the book, and this surprised me. So you drop in these little vignettes about yourself running and it's all related to why we run. And at first I'm like, why is he doing this? And you tell one sort of near the end, I don't know which New York it was and your own personal running. Then you kind of start thinking like, why is this guy running all these damn marathons? And first you wanted to make Boston. Then you made Boston. You keep running all these damn marathons. I'm like, this guy needs to stop, man. Like what's going on? And so it's the New York. It didn't go well. And you start walking. Yeah. And there's just some line in there and you, you, the people are high fiving you. And I think you start jogging again and you're just enjoying the walk. Maybe you're enjoying the walking no, so much. It. Maybe I you just kept walking. In, and I'm like, last month. I'm like, this is what, this is the beauty of like humanity and our sport. And it's like the beauty of the marathon. And like, it just sort of encapsulated to me. I was just like, this is so great. And I don't know if I was having a bad day or what the deal was, but I like, I just, it was not related to the toads. It was not related to Meb. It was not related to running fast, but I was like, yeah, I think all of us, maybe that's not why we run because we don't run so we can walk in a marathon. But like, there's something about, I feel like the sport of running that 
brings out this sort of common humanity in us. Well, there's no question that, you know, I think every city is at its best on its marathon day. Um, I mean, think about it. There's sort of random, some number of hundreds or thousands of people are just running on the street and all these people come out to yell for strangers and to give them water and oranges and bananas. It's completely bizarre. I mean, like maybe 500 years from now, it'll know, be like- anthropologists will be like, this is real. Look what they did. This is so like, what a collect, what a collective, you know, collective force they had that they did this thing. So, so I mean, I start with that. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, that was a 2016 New York marathon. And I had had a, that was my one year that I had had like a, a bad knee and I hadn't really been able to get a good training block in, but I was getting progressively better. And I did that thing where you convince yourself you're actually in better shape than you are, even though you haven't been able to put all the miles in. And like I said, I was getting progressively better. So I started out that race. It was a nice day too. It was a nice, crisp, sunny day. Uh, and I started out that race as if I could, you know, PR, you know, as if at, at like the pace that I would normally go. And I was just totally done by 25. At 25, I was, I just said to myself, you know what? I think I'm done. I'm just going to walk the rest of the way. And as soon as I stopped, people started yelling for me like they'd never yelled for me before. It was great. And it was just, you know, you felt, I just felt like an incredible sense of like love and appreciation. Um, And, you know, like I said, I'm I'm pretty much a lifelong New Yorker. And like, if there was a, there was ever a moment that would be like, yeah, this is my city doing what it does. That was it. Yeah. It was a great story. And I liked it. And I think, We've had, I don't know, I've had this debate in Let's Run. Maybe I can segue into being a sports editor in New York Times, a couple questions, you don't mind, because I think that's a really cool job. But we were having this debate, and it's just in the running world. I'm like, oh, we're too negative on Let's Run. And then I heard some people at USATF say we're too negative, but I was like, this headline's too negative. And then I started thinking about, we well, are in sports, so it's, it's not, you know, it's not like front page news, but I'm like, I open up the paper and it's like, oh, look at this racist here in Michigan or this guy here. And I'm like, oh, of course. I'm like, do we have to focus on profiling this guy? Like, there's a lot of good people in the world. And I feel like those stories aren't told, but I'm like, oh, in the running world, I don't go tell the good stories. A lot of time it's like, oh, they screwed this up. And then I'm like, what's our role as media? Do we just point out what's wrong? I mean, obviously being with the New York Times is very different with being with Let's Run. But sort of at times, do you think the the role of the media where I don't know, it's just too negative or it's, just, it's easy to be too negative and, or that's what sells papers. Like how, how do you sort of, I'm curious also like the sports section, what you guys put in, but start with the negativity thing. I, well, I do, I do think you look, you got to hold people accountable. Right. And you know, when people do bad, when people do bad things publicly or it impacts lots of other people, um, that's something you gotta, you gotta point out. Uh, and so, and hopefully, you know, that makes, that does make some effort to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, but I feel like, I mean, yeah, maybe it, I just get it, frustrated it, at times that like we just point it out and nothing changes because sometimes I'm running and I know you guys can't do anything. I can, I don't know. I don't have a journalism degree. I got my own website. I can do what I want, but I'm like, Oh, should we take more action? But even with the, okay, I'm fascinated with New York. 
maybe the, hey, maybe some New York Times people are listening. So you guys had fascinated. Oh, I by, guarantee you they're listening. I'm fascinated by this. I got two plans to fix New York. First of all, this will be unpopular, especially if you own a place. Do you own a place or rent? Own a place, yeah. Okay, you're not gonna. I'm like, an owner. You're not gonna like my idea. What's the one thing we have the least of in New York? Property. What's taxed the least? Property. And this is coming from a taxi who hates property taxes. We need a three percent property tax every year for people who don't live here. If you live here, it should be like one percent or something. And we can phase it in because if you own a place here, property taxes aren't even one percent a year. And almost every other city in America, they are. So what do we get built? Instead, we get built these like giant skyscrapers for guys who want to have a $100 million pad or a $10 million pad. And that just takes a valuable real estate. And then the rest of us are, and I've heard only like 10 or 15% of real estate makes a huge difference. If there's not that much pressure, all the prices come down. So that would help. AOC, you listening? Yes. And this, this is coming from a conservative Texan. Higher taxes on real estate. My other thing I'm fascinated by is subway. It's packed. And they're saying they're out of money all the time. And now I've noticed the signs are up, fair jumping. It's terrible, right? Yeah. So first of all, help me out. If I have a subway park card and it's not working and the subway's there, am I allowed to jump? Is that okay? It's I've, not okay. I've already like, paid. I've already paid. It's a monthly oh, if pass. It's not working. If it's a monthly pass. And it's not working? Ethically. No, it's just, it would probably work if I swiped it four times, but the subway's right, right there. You know, you have you, to. You give me permission. Yeah, I would give uh, you permission. You don't want to get on record here. You have to take that up with the, uh, the the officer who catches you jumping, if he can catch you. I would. I think you just run. He's probably not. But catch I, you. I, sw- I swear, I read today like fare jumping's like two hundred million. That's if everybody paid. People are always going to somewhat skip the fare. The extension to the LGA we're yeah. supposed to cost five hundred million. We're now to 1.5 billion in like four years. It's like one line. How do you blow a billion dollars? Like everybody could fair jump for five yeah, I'm years. Not gonna, I'm not going to sit here and defend uh, the MTA, but I do think, you know, nobody talks about, and I never hear about European transportation systems, whether they make money or lose money. They're just sort of there like a fact of life because they get fully funded so that's the government as they should. Um, and I think my argument would be, and I'm a biased New York city resident on this is that, uh, the, you know, the MTA, which runs the subways is a state organization and the rest of the state does not pay enough money to fund the New York city subway system. Like it's, it's, it's like a, we've we've spent too much on like this eat what you kill attitude. Well, the fares, the users have to pay for it. You know, like route 80, there's no tolls on route 80. Right. I get it. It's gotta be publicly subsidized everywhere. Right. All those cars are getting a free ride. Like who built route 80? Who repairs route 80? The government does all that because we've accepted that. Yeah. We need route 80. Okay. So, so, but we don't accept that with, I mean, the subway is what, 13 million rides a day or something ridiculous like that. And, you know, this is without, I, I've been through like snowstorms and stuff like that in this, in this city. The one thing that shuts down the city is if the subway doesn't work. If the subway doesn't work, no, nothing works. The whole city like really shuts down. Nobody can do anything. People can't get home. They have to sleep. Well, I remember a babysitter slept over at our house one night, the, the night of the blackout and the subways weren't working. Like 
everybody had to just sleep where they were because that's the only way everybody gets around. And this is, you know, the economic hub, maybe of the world. And, you know, it relies on this subway system. So you need, we need the rest of the state, so, certainly okay. the rest of the region. And This I is good. See, as an outsider, I just want to tell you you're wrong. So if we got New York Times people listening. So the, I read this article. It was in the Times. Yeah. The most expensive mile of subway track on yeah, Earth. Yeah, no, it's terrible. It's unbelievable. Mismanagement. Brian, Google it. Brian Rosenthal. Great story. They spend six times more per mile here than Paris. Paris is very expensive. And I'm like, right. well, we talk about all this shit. Quit spending six times a mile. Our goal should be twi- will be twice as expensive as Paris. We would save billions a year. Yep. We wouldn't be have to worry about like raising the fares they, or anything. Definitely. there's That is a part of it as well. So uh, that's what I want. Okay. But, but, but if we just point it out, you guys pointed it out. I had never read it. I moved here, but I'm fascinated. How subway out of money? I found this article and I'm like, whoever wrote this, how come there aren't Brian smarting heads that can right. fix this? I just hear that subway doesn't have enough money. I'm like, well, maybe it doesn't, but if they didn't spend an extra $4 billion on this one mile of track and then. Yeah. So. It's challenging. If. Bob it's, Larson had a subway growing up. We wouldn't be here right now. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Is, what's Bob up to nowadays? Is, is Bob is essentially retired. He's enjoying, I think, that he's the main character in a book, although it shocked him a little bit. Uh, I never told Bob that he was the main character after I figured out that he was the main character. Oh, wow. um, I sort of took the Michael Lewis approach with Moneyball, which is that you know, he was hanging around the Oakland A's for a season and um, spending a lot of time and talking to Billy Bean. But Billy Bean had no idea that he was the main character of the book until he saw like an advanced copy of it. And he was apparently really pissed about it. Um, it, Bob doesn't really, Bob was not pissed, but it took him a while to get used to it. But, you know, as a writer, you're looking for, you know, you're looking for the mule um, that can carry the story. And, about six months into researching and reporting the story, I sort of came to the conclusion that this was really Bob's story, that there was a bunch of runners, but that he was the through line and that he couldn't just be this character who popped in and out and said different things. And it was partly because I was interviewing these guys and they all talked about Bob as the essential person in their lives, you know, uh, that he was the third parent, um, that he's the most influential person that they, they've ever met. They are who they are because of Bob Larson. And that's how it came to, came to be that this was really sort of his story. Yeah. It shows what a bad journalist I am. I just sort of assumed you knew that Bob was going to be the, I didn't even ask you that question that he'd be the focus of the book all along, but I mean, it was a great book. Thank you, Bob. And thank you, Matthew for making it about Bob, because I think it's, yeah, he was the perfect person to sort of, one, his story is incredible, but then it just, you know, the rise and fall of American distance running. We didn't get on that. Actually, here, all right, bonus, two seconds. Sure. You have this theory in there that Alberto Salazar, essentially burning out, started the demise of running for about, what, from like, mid eighties to two thousands. Yeah. People were afraid to run a lot. I'd never th- thought I'm like, cause Bob was clearly coaching. These guys were running a lot. Some of these guys were still along and then people quit running. And then somewhere around 2000, I feel like the internet kind of helped people. They started talking again and they're like, wait, like we used to do it like this. Let's start doing that again. It could help spread information better, but 
your big thing was like Salazar like cooked himself and people are like, Whoa, we don't want to overdo it. Like, yeah, we don't want to do that. Good. And then they, it's easy to keep, take one nugget of, nugget of wisdom and take it too far. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, nobody trained harder than Alberto as, as far as I can tell. I mean, he was a lunatic. Uh, and then he burns out. He sort of runs into, he was supposed to, he was supposed to win the Olympic gold medal in 84. And that was going to be his crowning achievement. He'd run New York, what, three times in a row. And he won Boston. He sort of won everything. He's the best distance runner in the world. And, you know, 26 years old, he just runs into a wall. And uh, that really spooked everybody. It was sort of my theory. And I asked people about it, I, you know, and there's really like this just cutoff point where everybody is running really hard in the early eighties. And then all of a sudden they're not. And, you know, people started talking about like, you know, we all got kind of afraid, you know, Alberto, what happened to him. And all of a sudden people are just running like 90 miles a week. And there was this real, and so what happened? And, and that's, that's, one of the things, and, and and it's not just my theory, Bob thinks this too, that really spooked people. And then there was uh, this very influential book written by Sebastian Coe's dad. Um, and people really pay attention to the stars. Sports is a copycat business. And what if someone sees someone doing something successful, they copy it. They say, oh, that must right. be the way to do it. And uh, Sebastian Coe's dad wrote this book and a lot of the book folk didn't, you know, focused on, and Coe was the biggest star in distance running, even though he wasn't a marathoner uh, in the 80s. And a lot of it focused on just shorter training. And, you know, what apparently was left out of the book was he would do distance. He'd do a lot of cross country in the he winter. He did some cross country in the winter. And, nobody, and his dad, but his, but his dad wasn't coaching that part. Right. That was some other, that was some other coach out there. And that just didn't get mentioned. So uh, that was apparently very influential too. But yeah, that was, that was something that, that, that clearly seemed to happen. And then it's really, it's really Larson um, who sort of starts that mammoth group uh, with the help of running USA and um, a handful of shoe companies kicked in a little bit of money, not very much money. Uh, and they, you know, collect eight runners or so and they head up to mammoth and they do what the East Africans are doing and they do what Bob was doing with the Hummel toes back in the seventies. Yeah. So now people are going to read your book and, Maybe they'll start running too much. Right. I think that'll, <laughs> hey, that'll be a good problem to have. Run to the edge, people, not over. Exactly. I mean, like any young people listening, because I was thinking about how you're describing it. And I'm like, oh, right up to that point, you're really struggling. And I think, I almost think of it as the opposite, but I'm no meb. So maybe I should have run harder, but I'm like, oh, it's just that you're a little more comfortable. Like, I mean, sure, there's times you're really, there's kind of different edges, right? How far yes. you're going and that sort of stuff. But I'm like, if you, if you want to err on the side of caution, air on this side of the edge right but don't be like sebco so right right <laughs> well thank you this thanks great. a lot for having me let's run appreciate these, it uh, the by as far as i'm concerned the bible of running we all worship it and love it and uh keep it keep it up if someone said uh actually somebody at sports illustrated this might have been david epstein when he was there someone he was introducing somebody and they're like oh let's run's like the new york times of running and i was like David, that's a bit much. <laughs> and then my wife met somebody here and she's like, let's run like the page six of running. So I'm like, okay, somewhere in there we'll take. You Whatever. Know? <laughs> I sort of feel like it's like the oxygen of running. It's like, you can't live without it. It's just, it's just there. It's, it's sort of, it's, 
you know, it's the air you breathe in the, in the sport. So, um, yeah, we're all addicted to it. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Good stuff. Weldon on the interview. If you're still listening and you're on a run, you're on a really, really long run. So hopefully you're an ultra runner because we're going to talk about Western States right now. The Western States 100 mile endurance run. Actually, it was 100.2 miles. I don't know if it's always 100.2. I assume it's always 100.2. was held last weekend. And folks, we kind of last week on the podcast jokingly predicted the winners. We were wrong about one of them. Jim Walmsley, the course record holder, did destroy his course record by more than 20 minutes. Got the big win in 1409.28. His roommate, Jared Hazen, also broke the old course record of 1430.04 by running 1426.50. So a really good performance by, what do they call the Coconut Cowboys or something, Weldon? Coconino. That's the county that Flagstaff's in. It's like the, one of the biggest counties in the United States. It's like Flagstaff and Grand Canyon. And in the women's race, it was a nail-biter. Um, I think that the women, we all said that, you know, Courtney DeWalter would definitely win. I mean, she's the best trail runner in the world. She was the heavy favorite. But as John, John, you predict this last week, anything can happen in the old trip. She picked up an injury. She was looking great. She was way ahead of course record pace. And I think she dropped around mile 70. Um, excuse me, just before 80 miles after Camille Heron, the former comrades champ had also dropped out early in the, in the first half. It's amazing to me how Camille Heron, who's like the 24 hour world record holder for women, how bad she is on the trails. And uh, like, she was already way back at the beginning of the race. So it's just a fascinating thing how there's so many different types of runners in these things. So after Courtney and and Camille dropped out, it it came down to, to Claire Gallagher and, and Brittany Peterson. And Claire was in second place you know, ended up being in first once DeWalter dropped for, for most of the race. But it then got really interesting because just the way that the that it played out in the last few miles, like at mile 85, Gallagher had a nine-minute lead. Fast forward to mile 94. So 94 minutes, that lead is done. They're neck and neck. They're literally running side by side through the aid station. So you think, I would think, you know, hey, you've come from nine minutes back in nine miles. Uh, of course, Peterson's going to win it. But then, no, Gallagher, I don't know if she was just resting up and saying, I'm going to let this girl catch me, blows it out. And put gapped her, like, in the next two and a half miles, she she put almost two minutes on her. And just the, the gap only grew from there to the finish. So that's all according to irunfar.com. They have great coverage. But, you know, you've got a nine-minute lead at 85 miles. 94 miles, you're tied. And then the the person who catches you doesn't win it. So I guess you can never really know, you know, if you come from way back, you think that person would win it, but that's not what happened here. Yeah. I had to reread that recap a couple of times just to make sure that I was getting the facts straight. Because like you said, Robert, that never in a marathon, someone overcomes a huge deficit. You, you almost never see that. I don't know if it's because it's an ultra or just because this was a heroic performance, but Great, great finish. And I got to say, when you said mile 85, my eyes just started to glaze over. I just can't believe how long they're out there running. This is just an all day thing. So it's, yeah, great racing on the women's side for sure. So her winning time is 17, 23, 24, which I think is the second best time ever there. I mean, the course record is 16. Let's talk a little about the course records on both sides. It's 16, 47, 19. So let's talk the men first. Walmsley's obviously amazing, 1407, but 
if we're still going to ding a little bit the ultra marathon scene, some guy I've never heard of, and I probably should have heard of, of Hazen, right? But well, yeah, hold on, Robert. How many ultra marathoners have you? How many guys in this race have you heard of? Well, I'm just saying, if somebody most people haven't heard of breaks the old course record, how great was that course record? To but you're not with? most. I mean, most people globally don't know anyone ultra marathoners. You know, maybe a couple. And ultramarathoner fans probably do know this guy. I've never heard of him, but I don't follow the ultramarathon. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's fair to say it's coming out of nowhere just when it's coming out of nowhere in your mind. I'm just raising the question. I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Jared is, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, it, it's not unusual. Like people thought, oh, no one can be better than Federer. Then you have Nadal and, and, and Djokovic at the same time. So, Maybe Hazen is going to end up being a worthy rival to jam on the roads. I mean, they obviously both ran fantastic. That's all I'm saying. Now, on the women's side, we're looks like we're about what 45, 46 minutes away from. Oh, well, if, if the course record is 16, 47, and 23. Oh, excuse me, 36 minutes off the course record. So, but the question I had was like, how fast would Doe Walter have run if she hadn't gotten hurt? Because at like mile like 50. Five, again. This is from I Run Far. So at mile fifty-five, DeWalter was up on Gallagher by thirty-eight minutes. So if you if you backtrack that to fifty and multiply it by two, I mean she probably had more than thirty minutes lead at, at fifty miles. So she probably, I mean, assuming she could keep that up, obviously she couldn't keep that up. I would say at, subtract a minute, right, from DeWalter's time. I mean, from, from from Gallagher's time. You mean an hour? Well, if you take a minute off six seventeen twenty three, yeah, an hour. Excuse me, you would get sixteen twenty three. So sixteen twenty three would be, yeah, that's doable because that would be about twenty four minutes faster than the current course record. And, and Jim broke his old course record by twenty four minutes because a big part about Western States is, is the heat. It was not over a hundred degrees in part of it this year. It was much cooler than normal. So, um, kind of interesting. You know, I, I think someone could run certainly around sixteen twenty for the women, and now the big debate in the men is: can anyone break fourteen hours? A couple questions, Robert. You can look this up. As for Jared Hazen, Robert, you may have emailed him. He was one of the Hoka athletes. When I went to the event, actually, I just looked up what he looks like. I didn't talk to him. I feel bad. I think he goes to NAU. He wasn't go to Penn State. It looks like this is just googling around, and then just sort of moved out west and was like working as a as a housekeeper at one of the national parks and just sort of fell in love with it and stayed out there. And now I think he, he goes to school at NAU. So NAU not only has the top cross country team in the nation, but they've got one of the top ultra runners in the marathon in the world. But should Jim Walmsley now kick him out of the house? You know, the little rivals like living in his house, copying all the secrets. Well, it's probably good to have a training partner as long as you're still beating him. But if he gets close, then you got to pull a Centro and, and get out. You don't want to train Murphy to beat you. You don't want to train Haven to beat you. So I wonder what he could run for NAU. Although I'm, I, I Googled his TFRS running unattached 2016, a 439 mile at altitude Air Force, like 7,000 feet. Well, guys, I think that's enough talk for the podcast. We can't talk the full six hours. So. Someone could listen to the podcast while running Western States. Six hours? You mean 14 hours? Oh, excuse me. 14 hours. We definitely can't talk that long. We should do that next year. We'll do a live podcast for the entire 14 hours of Western States. We could talk sports, politics. We could solve the world's problems. Well, we'll probably, I'll probably 
we'll all have been banned from the internet by the end of it because Rojo will say something outrageous when he's, you know, two or three beers in. I'm not the one writing such outrageous columns that the world's fastest man won't talk to me. John may have made his last trip to the Prefront Clean Classic. Now that he's can't interview anyone, there's no reason to send him out there anymore. We'll just um, save the cash and spend it on my own vacations. John, before we leave, we need a prediction. You're, you're our soccer expert or football expert. We need a final score. How do you see the game playing out this afternoon? I think it's going to be, it could be an all-time classic. You guys will have already listened, seen the results by the time you listen to this. 2-1 England. Come on, England. It's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming. Football's coming home. Folks, we recorded seven different versions of that, so John would get the score correctly. Okay, that's a joke. Oh, and I've got more bad news. If John doesn't go back to Prefontaine, we may have someone at the Monaco Diamond League meet this year. John, and unfortunately, it will not be you. It's on my bucket list. It won't be me or Robert either, but there may be someone there covering it for us. So we got the Wasan Diamond League this Friday. You got July 4th on Thursday, everybody. And then Monaco a week from Friday. So don't forget about your track and field this weekend. But great podcast, guys. Until next week, signing off.